Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and with me, as always, is... Catherine! My sister, right? And we are here to talk once again about a cinematic near-miss, a failure, if you will, right? Because not every movie can be a masterpiece, but sometimes they can be a failure piece. So the film that we have chosen to talk about today is... Dread. Dread. That's right. The 2012... Second attempt to start a appreciation of dread outside of of a, a relatively small cadre of comic book fans, um, but um, this particular film is directed by Pete Travis, uh, or was it? <laughs> um, stars Carl Urban, right? Um, Aomer from Lord of the Rings, uh, the original Doom guy from Doom. Frequent star of my dreams. Oh, man. Absolute, absolute mad lad, Carl Urban. Uh, Love Carl Urban. Uh, Who's currently kicking ass in uh, Amazon Prime's The Boys, which I'm very excited for the second season. Uh, All right. So before we get into our unfortunate cinematic failure in regards to Dread, uh, what have you been watching? Have you had any time this week to consume media? Well... I have been watching uh, Jim Gaffigan's The Pale Tourist on Amazon Prime. Fun, fun. I'm trying to immerse myself in a lot of stand-up comedy because the world sucks. Um, Just a little. <laughs> and that's, that seems to be helping. Um, but I, I, I adore his comedy. I, I watch, watch him do anything. I watch his YouTube channel where he just posts videos of dinner with his family. Um. Mm-hmm. But I've been watching that, and I have sadly been falling asleep every night watching Criminal Minds. <sighs> Last yeah. night, as I was drifting off, I, I'm, I'm not really paying attention to the show, and I'm almost asleep, and I'm just jolted awake by the phrase, but not all of the fingers in her stomach belong to her. <laughs> what, the, what am I watching? That is a problem <laughs> if it happens, yes. No wonder I have weird dreams. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, right? Going to sleep listening to that. Very cool. Uh, so you're still in the Mandy Patinkin era of Criminal Minds. We have yet moved to the Joe Mantegna era. I'm I'm in the the Fat Tony era, which I I'm, I was diehard Mandy Patinkin all the way because mm-hmm. he's amazing. When um, did he drop it? Was that like third season? That was the season? second season. He dropped it on the second season. Gideon oh, wow. was just was gone, and I'm like, oh that. man, that was the reason I watched the show. Wow. All of his you know yeah, homespun no wisdom and. <clears throat> broodiness just, I love it but Fat Tony is is an excellent change Joe Mantegna no Joe Mantegna is great yeah underrated actor you know uh, I'll, I'll always love him for the usual suspects alone like he's so good in that movie um wow very cool yeah no that's awesome um, um but that's pretty much all I've I've been able to consume this week Sadly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I've I've been pretty busy this week. We, um, but we did work in time. Uh, Friday they released the latest uh, Tales of Arcadia series on Netflix. It's a series of DreamWorks animated shows, um, orchestrated. Uh, I don't know how hands on he is, but apparently fairly so. Uh, by Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, it started with Troll Hunters, the Tales of Arcadia, back, jeez, uh, twenty sixteen maybe. Um, it was one of the last projects that Anton Yelchin worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did voice work for that. 
and had recorded enough that they were actually able to use uh, Anton Yelchin's voice up until almost the third season of the show, uh, even though he had, had passed away you know, almost a year and a half before that time frame. Uh, but a great series, uh, co-created uh, co by Cameron Del Toro and Daniel Licht, I think, uh, okay. who had sort of done this story uh, in, in sort of YA fiction um, and uh, they kind of adapted it and brought it in. Great story, brilliant voice cast. Anton Yelchin eventually replaced by Emil Hirsch, which is a, it was an excellent choice. It was a wonderful handoff. Um, and uh, Kelsey Grammer, uh, and then a, a just a cavalcade of like your your voice actors that you want in your show. Um, then that was followed up with a second series after Trollhunters came to an end called Three Below, which was a show about aliens who came to the same place. The whole show is kind of centered around a city called Arcadia, Arcadia Valley or something. And so all of these crazy things happened there. And then uh, that one had, uh, um, oh, he plays, uh, gosh, what is his name? Crap. Uh, he played uh, on Parks and Recreation, Ron Swanson. Um, oh, Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, thank you. I could get the Nick. It was Offerman was causing me problems. But uh, he was great in it. Uh, so they had another series there that ran for like two seasons. And then now they've introduced the third series, which is called Wizards, right? So uh, it's a bunch of Arthurian mythology. It's got Merlin mm -hmm. in it and Morgana Le Fay. And um, it, it's, it's just, it was really great. We, it, they only, it was only 10 episodes, 22 minutes. Uh, so we just kind of powered through that with the kids and watched the whole thing in a night. Um, and it was really fun. And they're, they're teeing up, I think, a, a big sort of final movie that will draw everything together and then sort of complete the series. So uh, we watched that, and that was fun. And then apart from that, I'm really just kind of still moving through uh, Ozark with uh, my wife and uh, enjoying that for, uh, for what it is. Yes. Uh, which I'm, I'm finding that I'm enjoying, at least at this stage of the game, I'm enjoying it a lot more than Breaking Bad at this phase. Uh, I think the family drama is working a lot better for me than it ever did in Breaking Bad. I did not care at all about his family in Breaking Bad. And maybe that makes me a terrible person, but um, the, the entire relationship with his wife and, and you know, the, the walking the razor's edge, I, I never cared about any of that stuff. I was very much interested in just the, the architecture and structure of being a drug dealer like that's really what i was interested in with breaking bad and, and that, that changed towards the end of the series but at the beginning you know every time it was you know we're eating cereal and angry at each other i was like i don't i don't care about any of these things i'm a terrible person um, i've only ever seen the first season of that show i've watched the first season of that show now three times because every few years i'm like i am going to watch breaking bad now i'm yes. gonna do it <laughs> I know and everything me, that happens in the yeah. show, but I'm going to do it. Right. And the show gets be gets better, but it was... Every time I'm just like, ah, yeah. I could watch something else. <laughs> um, I think I've, I just, I know almost too much about the show I'm, to sure. get through it's it cultural osmosis struggling. <laughs> it's kind of like watching Harry Potter movies after they've been out for a while. <laughs> Yeah, some of the magic's just kind of gone. Yeah. Snape kills Dumbledore. I already knew oh, that. Oh man, what? Well, uh, I'm definitely with you there. Like I said, it was it was one of those things. I I acknowledge the brilliance of the show. I by the end of it, I, I cared very much, but 
at that early phase as I was kind of pounding through it on Netflix, I, it was just not doing much for me. I'm in, Ozark is, I'm is in the camp of more. weirdos, a show that I love and could watch again right now, Mad Men. I loved mm. that show. See, here's here's the thing. I've never watched Mad Men. Oh, never seen an episode. Great. Not even a scene. Um, I really was not on board. I was like, that sounds stupid. It's probably just like, look at doing cool suits and stuff. And I sat down and, and I... I watched a few episodes and I found myself just going back and watching it every day until it was done. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, Matthew Weiner is, is, uh, he's a brilliant showrunner and, and Mad Men um, I know is, is something I would probably get super into if I, if I watched it. But, um, I, even though he's a, a local boy, uh, I'm not the biggest John Hamm fan. Uh, I think he is, is very good within the, somewhat narrow range that he possesses but um i've never found him an incredibly watchable guy um, this is probably i know that there are many other people in the series to hang your hat on i yeah. understand that but um, um you know he was never a draw for me as it was for some people he wasn't really for me either i i like him as a person more than an actor i guess um you know st louis pride like you said yeah, totally. um, but yeah, he wasn't a, a big draw. I was thinking I would just enjoy the show based on costumes. <laughs> the time frame. Yeah, like, sure. I'm I mean, going Elizabeth, to enjoy um, watching this. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. What was Invisible Man? Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. You know, I mean, obviously she's fantastic in everything she does. So. And her character, it she is almost the reason to watch the show at a certain point. Um, nice. and of course, Christina Hendricks is absolutely electric from the moment she enters the frame to the moment she exits. Um, mm -hmm. and that comes from someone who was like, I'm not going to take her seriously. Cause I didn't really care for her in Firefly and, you know, the small appearances that she made before that, but right. man, she's good on that show. Um, well, I think, you know, good material gives you a lot to chew on for sure. So yeah, that's oh, cool. last word on that. <laughs> I'll put that on the list too. <laughs> but all right. So speaking of Mad Men, uh, let's go ahead and transition, if you will, to Dread. Uh, so to to have a discussion about this particular film, uh, I will provide some context for for who Dread is, because one of the issues that we're probably going to need to deal with in terms of why this film was not a success, uh, which is another example of a, a failure piece that we're looking at that was critically well-received for the most part. Again, it's not stellar, you know, we're not, it's not a 90% plus, but it did okay in terms of, of, you know, it's critical reaction, but no one saw it. Yeah. Literally it, no didn't one. Didn't it, it lose money? It, it lost money. It barely made its budget back in with total worldwide box like in the united states it made like less than 13 million dollars which was a colossal failure it only needed to make 30 in the american box office for them to consider sequels that was some kind of contractual arrangement and it never it didn't even come close to that um i was there i saw it opening weekend um as as did many people that i knew but it was not enough but dread uh, or Judge Dredd, as he is formerly, uh, formerly known, 
uh, is one of the longest running characters in the British sort of punk comic magazine known as 2000 AD, uh, which was designed to be a uh, multi-character anthology that would, in essence, you know, they would, would try things out and stuff that hit would continue on. If it didn't, it would just sort of fade away. Sort of similar to what uh, Dark Horse was doing back in the same time, back in the 90s with like Dark Horse Presents, where they would, you know, throw characters in these little, you know, self-contained stories and then people, if they had a positive reaction, they'd come back or offer them to series, you know, that kind of thing. That's how Hellboy started exactly. was in Dark Horse Presents, you know. It was a chance for Mike Mignola to sort of throw this idea of the character out there. People blew up about it and so he gets his own deal. So, Dread was one of the earliest characters introduced in 2000 AD and quickly became its flagship character. Um, the story, uh, which I guess the first one debuted in the late 70s, it was like 77, so when the first uh, Dread story hit. And it, in many ways, the, the story feels like because uh, the 70s in, in Britain, and I, I've read several articles and, and a couple of papers about this, the 70s in, in Britain was kind of a dark period. Uh, it wasn't terrible, but they had come out of the swinging 60s where everything was you know, very good, and things had kind of fallen apart. There were a lot of policies that kind of weren't working. People were, weren't angry, but everybody was kind of just, there was a general unease. Well, that's right? what that started the punk rock. Uh, yes, exactly. Like, punk came out of the same movement that built 2000 AD. And, and 2000 AD is often aligned with the punk rock movement in Britain uh, because it espoused many of those ideas. And, and so Dread kind of came out of that, that sort of cultural malaise of the late 1970s. And he, in many ways, predicated the ultra-conservative movements of the 1980s that exploded pretty much all over the world and we're currently witnessing a second explosion of mm. right now. Um, so Dread exists in a future apocalypse. Um, the entire world has been laid waste uh, and, uh, and, and most of it is now called the Cursed Lands, uh, where people live. You can still survive, but it is lawless and unregulated and you know if you go out there it's like signing your own death warrant you just don't know when very mad max in its tone obviously influenced but to combat that um the the giant urban sprawls that had developed over the course of you know the long centuries or whatever uh congealed together into mega cities right mega states mega cities mega 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 everything right so um but uh, so Dread is a judge in Mega City One, which is, right? which is supposed right? it's the Eastern Seaboard exactly. So it's it's pretty much everything from New York down to in the movie they they say down to Washington D.C., but in the comic book it's spread you know closer to Florida. So it's just one giant city housing million, I guess hundreds of millions of people really. Um, and so they are the law enforcement, right? They are members of the Justice Department, which is a nice little play on the American, <laughs> the American justice system. But the Justice Department of the future, judges are trained to be uh, full. They, they, are, they are the law, to, to quote the, the famous line, which my son quoted at me today. <laughs> we were... We were, I'd finished reviewing Dread in my office. I was kind of, you know, watching it there and, and reviewing some scenes just to, to you know, re-familiarize and contextualize. 
I sit down on the couch and my my son is playing Animal Crossing. And he does something with one of the villagers and he just looks at it and apropos of nothing says, I am the law. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, were you listening to the movie I was watching? Because I had my door closed. And I was like, were you? And he's like, no, no, I saw it on The Adventures of Gumball. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and the Adventures of Gumball is like this cartoon network show with these like two crazy characters that get into trouble all the time. And he's like, no, Gumball said it, says it to this other guy all the time. He just looks at him square in the face and screams, I am the law. <laughs> Uh, so apparently Judge Dredd has seeded its way into Cartoon Network for eight-year-olds, right? Uh, so, and it was just, it was really hilarious because I was like, whoa, how do you know that phrase? Um, but so the judges are the complete package. They can, uh, arrest you, sentence you, and judge you all in one fell swoop there is they are the entirety of the legal process and judge dread is the fiercest and most dangerous of all of the judges of mega city one he's the most badass he is the most badass judge of badass badass judges um and so you know he he later issues uh, of the comic sort of deal with the inherent fascism of Judge Dredd, right? The the dictatorship, totalitarian mindset that that Dredd embodies and in some ways typifies. But he also has, and, and here is sort of the Dirty Harry-esque, you know, underpinnings of the character. He has an unbreakable moral code, which gives him a certain amount of respect, right? So it's a similar effect to what you get with Batman, where Batman is a, a vigilante. He is a lawbreaker, but because he has this incredible and unbreakable will and drive, we we wind up respecting him, right? So it is the very sort of pinnacle essence of the anti-hero. Um, and Dread uh, was designed to be a comic book. Uh, the original uh, artist, uh, Carlos Esquera, hyper violent, uh, beautiful black and white art. I mean, it's gorgeous. Judge uh, Judge Dredd's character design. He's got this crazy armor with all of this you know american symbology all over it you know eagles heads and flags and stars and stripes and but it's all congealed into this like hyper totalitarianist neo-fascist nazi garb like it, it's it's really brilliant and and it's easy to see why dread quickly became the the most sort of popular and successful character from this series um, it's, it's iconic, it's brilliant, uh, and it is an, an, a delightful playground to tell stories in this universe, which is ultimately what a comic book really needs to excel at to be successful. And Dread does it. So, um, I guess we should also acknowledge that this is, again, the second time that people have tried to make a Judge Dread film. The first, a lot of people have probably seen at this point, uh, it has kind of fallen into that near cult classic phase although I, I think it still sort of hasn't quite been fully embraced because it is a terrible film um but uh, that one of course was a sylvester stallone vehicle from the mid 90s um when stallone seemed intent on making large big budget action spectacle films uh that co-starred rob schneider <laughs> um and he just some was in the mood for some schneider and he and some were, right? Uh, another film that I hope to talk about on here before too long is, of course, Demolition Man. 
which is one of my favorite action, you know, sort of guilty pleasures of all time. I don't and even it feel mostly guilty. works. It's a perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, but the original Judge Dredd, um, while it does have, I would say, more pieces of it and, and references to the comic book in it than this one does, um, it, it fails in many ways because it tries to touch upon all those things. Um, and it, it struggles to just kind of get through its story. And apart from the fact that Sylvester Stallone, even though he's doing an okay job, he's not the right guy to play Judge Dredd. Well, famously, um, he made the decision to omit the defining feature of Judge Dredd's costume, which is right. his nearly full face helmet. The only right. thing um, that you can see is the stank face turned down corners mouth. <laughs> like that's all you can see. Right. And Stallone yeah. didn't want his face covered. Right. Which many actors do not. Um, the, but the judge dread character in the comics very famously has never taken off his mask. Yeah. His face has never been fully seen, um, which has given artists an incredible playground to, you know, create facial expressions and things like that. They've never been boxed in by saying, you know, this character has to look like this. So we've never had the issue of like DC has where basically Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne are identical. Like they look the same because the artists who were drawing them were told we'll make him look like this, you know, but dread has his identity is, is unknown. And typically what we would expect in a film adaptation is that we never see his face, but Sylvester Stallone being a massive action star refused to do that Which is for obvious reasons. Understandable. Yeah. But it just mm -hmm. it was yeah. sad that he picked this project to take that stance. Right. It's... Because here it actually is a function of the character. Yeah. Dread is supposed to be the faceless adjudicator, right? He is he is the the you know, he is the blind justice that is coming at you. And and it doesn't matter who he is because he is law, right? That's that's how the character functions. And so it is really sort of an intrinsic component that thankfully this film gets right, right? It's one of the things it gets right the most, in my opinion. So um, that's Judge Dredd in a nutshell. Uh, it is very difficult to encapsulate 30 plus years of a character's existence in, in just a few minutes. But needless to say, uh, there are some really good compilations on Amazon. Uh, they've sort of, they're calling it the, the Dread Case Files. And uh, the... The UK arm of 82,000, you can still get these. Uh, the American versions, I think, are, are hard to come by these days. But they put them out in volumes. I want to say there's like 36 or 37 volumes currently of Judge Dredd. But uh, the first one is really good, and the fifth one is really good as far as uh, like those classic Dredd stories. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of material out there for Judge Dredd um, that I, I certainly recommend people check out in comic form because they, they truly are incredible stories. But the nice thing about this version of Dread is that you don't need to know any of that stuff mm -hmm. and you still absolutely get what's going on. So the character was created by John Wagner and as I mentioned before, Carlos Esquera. Uh, the cool thing about the comic, the movie doesn't necessarily do this uh, because it doesn't want to nail things down in time, but uh, the cool thing about the 
serialized comic was that every story took place 122 years from the publication date of that story, right? So basically it was supposed to be a window into 122 years in the future and Dread actually ages in real time, right? Which is, is kind of a neat component as well. So about 120 years in the future is when all this stuff is supposedly happening. Uh, one other interesting tidbit of trivia, John Wagner, the creator, or really co-creator, the editor of 2080 probably had a lot more to do with the, the final version of Dread as he came in. But Wagner is, is generally credited as the, the core you know, writer and, and idea man behind the, the world of Dread. Um, Wagner is also well known in film for having written the comic book that A History of Violence was built from, mm -hmm. uh, which is a fantastic David Cronenberg, Viggo Mortensen starring vehicle, um, which is, is also about violence, um, past sins being revisited on the present, right? That kind of thing. Um, so Wagner, um, did not like the first version of Judge Dredd. Uh, and he was pretty vocal about that after the fact, said that he had kind of adapted the wrong character, in his words. Um, but he was very pleased with this film and actually contributed to the the press tour, which uh, was his, him sort of putting his stamp of approval on this version of Dredd. And, and again, rightly so. And as we break down uh, the film and talk about it, I think it'll become obvious why he probably looks positively on this project. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about the failure because again, this is another movie, uh, uh, like some others that we've talked about, that was received well critically. Right, this has a, a seventy nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now, so almost in the eighty percent range, which is generally where we're getting to. Yeah, these movies are pretty good at this point. Um, seventy two percent audience score with one hundred and fifty three thousand ratings. So again, not bad, a little lower than critics. Um, Metacritic puts it at a sixty. Uh, so a little bit lower than the Rotten Tomatoes, but I think a lot of that is because they're interpreting uh, more reviews as mixed rather than than positive uh, on their side, based on what I saw. So the reactions to this, I, I pulled a couple of negative ones because they do sort of, mostly they sort of commonly draw the things that I saw being consistently talked about. But I pulled a couple of positive ones too because they hit upon the things that this movie is doing very well. Um, so the failure comes not, unfortunately, from the critical reception. This film got tremendous critical reception for the type of film that it is, which is a 96-minute action movie. But it made negative dollars, <laughs> right? Uh, negative so the, the, $70. One thing that'll tell you, you know, that the budget of a movie was very much in flux is is whenever you go to look up the budget and it's a very large range. So this film's budget was reported anywhere from 30 to $45 million, which means that there were either some extensive work on the back end that contributed to additional spending at the end of the film project. There might have been some large expenditures for rights. Uh, apparently getting the rights away, uh, the original Judge Dredd film in 95 was financed by Disney through Buena Vista. And apparently getting the Dredd rights away from them was a fairly significant task. Uh, so that could have cost a lot of money. It's very, very possible. But so 30 to 45 million budget, which either of those two numbers, that is nothing in 2012. <laughs> The $30 million budget is a rom-com with Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson 
Right, it's half the rom com with Matthew <laughs> McConaughey and Kate Hudson, uh, and this film gets a lot of a lot of mileage for its money, but its its total worldwide box office was forty one and a half million dollars. So even if you look at at the lowest budget estimate of thirty million, this movie did not make enough money to justify anything. Um, so or, or any sort of future installments, and so this was was its greatest failure. So again, like many films nobody went to saw went to see this thing at least not in the theater and so um dread twice now has failed to connect with audiences because the first one while it made more money than that it did not make much money either even though it was a much larger swing um, you know, obviously the star power of Sylvester Stallone, who in 1995, Sylvester Stallone was a huge box office draw. I mean, that's when he was making stuff like Oscar and still somehow making money on those <laughs> projects. Um, so a huge box office draw, you know, that was the, the back and forth punching match between Schwarzenegger and, and Stallone. Schwarzenegger would release a film one summer, Stallone would release one the next summer, and they just kind of went back and forth like that throughout the 90s. And, and even still, Dread didn't hit. Um, so a couple of reviews, just real quick to provide some context here. Um, <laughs> Manola Dargis, our old friend from the New York Times, uh, said, and her, her review was not especially negative, like it was not positive, but she didn't hate it, but it was really short. It was like 250 words. She did not feel like writing an extended review of Dread, but she said this. Every so often there's a suggestion that a police state might actually be a lousy idea but this thought dies even faster than the disposable characters. <laughs> um, so she may have been looking for a political statement, right? Because Dread, in many ways, as we said, sort of came out of a very sort of dark political time in Britain and, and planted a flag in, in sort of this fascist, conservative police state of the future. But it was always poking fun at that. Like, Dredd is, is the hero, but he's not heroic in the traditional sense. Um, again, the only admirable quality that he has is his physical strength and his sort of impenetrable morality. Um, but that was kind of the point, right? I, I think part of the comic's idea was to play with the idea that fascism is effective, which is why we keep coming back to it, unfortunately. Right, like we just won't let it go because by golly, it gets things done, right? Uh, it's what leads to, I don't know, political figures constantly issuing executive orders mm. instead of creating laws, mm. right? I mean, just, just as a thought, a side note, if you will, on, on how to run a government. But so um, she was, was non, nonplussed with the, the sort of skewed political nature of the film. And, and I saw a few reviews that sort of touched upon that, but it seemed like a lot of reviewers were sort of willing to accept that that was not the movie that Dredd was trying to be <laughs> at any level. Uh, so another negative review, this one from the New York Post, Kyle Smith. Uh, my notes are as follows. Shoot, bad guy. Shoot, bad guy. Shoot, bad guy. Um, which mm. I picked this one because that was a fairly common refrain. Uh, this is an action film, and there is a lot of murder uh, much of it is extremely gory, extremely violent, and, uh, and somewhat difficult to watch if you are not prepared for it. To be fair, the comic was extremely violent. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that is I don't very on brand for Judge yeah, Dredd. If, if anything, 
if anything, the sort of generic nonviolence of the 95 version is what cheesed Dread, pan, Dread fans off at the time. Well, because it, it toned uh, down all that That's violence. what people hated about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That those mm-hmm. comics were insanely violent. Um, yeah, in their original form. Sure. Um, but once it was sold to a brand management company, you know, they weren't going to let that happen. We got to make this a Pizza Hut deal. <laughs> yeah, really. We got to put these guys on some lunch boxes. Uh, and of course, that's when you saw the much more friendly redesign. And really, it was the, the TV show that sort of kicked it off. And that was very sanitized. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Keith Phipps from the AV Club, uh, which generally likes genre pictures like this. But he was nonplussed. Uh, he said, mostly a bunch of flatly staged bits of action against anonymous backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I pulled this one because... Again, it harkens back to this idea that people thought this was too much action, not enough talky, I guess. Too much shooty-shooty, not enough talky-talky. Um, which I think is balanced better than most people give it credit for. But the, the thing I liked about this was the anonymous backgrounds component. Um, this film was shot in South Africa, uh, mostly for tax incentive purposes. <laughs> But it limited them in terms of uh, set creation. They could not build a ton of expensive sets. They didn't have a huge studio to work with. I mean, this wasn't like Pinewood, you know, where you've got these massive airplane hangars where you can build whatever you need. They didn't have those kinds of resources. They had to be very creative with set locations and shooting. The giant mezzanine where all of the bodies fall in the initial sequences and throughout the film, uh, that was an outside set. Uh, That was an outdoor sort of plaza that only had three sides, which is why you never see it from the reverse. Um, And they shot it at night to make it look like it was inside the building. Right. So that's, I wanted to point that out because I think that this film is, is doing a lot with the budget that it's got. And I don't know if that's something to praise. I mean, I certainly understand if you're watching and you see it as being kind of flat and boring, I get that. But at the same time, I think it's a bunch of filmmakers doing their best with a very limited tool set. And, uh, uh, again, something I saw fairly frequently that people said it looked kind of generic and dirty and, and not interesting enough. So I, uh, I'll maybe fight one of them later. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, and and again, it, it could be a larger discussion than we have about the world of dread itself and and how they're trying to represent it here. So a couple of positive ones that I wanted to pull, and both of these, I would actually say, were kind of middling reviews if you read the whole thing. But Rotten Tomatoes, since it's A or B, you know, one or the other, they they still mark them as positive because they weren't openly hostile. I guess. <laughs> uh, but so this is uh, Claudia Puig from USA Today, frequent contributor. Uh, we've read her reviews before. So while not for the squeamish, Dread 3D is an effectively gritty B movie accentuated by stylish visuals and irreverent humor um so the other piece of this that we have to to bring in is that this was released right at the i'm not going to say the height but but really sort of the wave of 3d film right 3d movies uh everybody's trying to make 3d stuff because you could charge twice as much for the ticket so everybody's trying to get on that train uh so they shot this movie in 3d and Um, you can feel it sometimes Uh, some of the sequences especially when they're doing sort of the CG violence uh, blood spatter things like that where they've got full control of all the elements 
the 3D worked pretty well. Uh, I saw it in 3D uh, when it was in the theater and, uh, and, and didn't hate it. Um, I think the issue is, is that uh, Dread is already a pretty dark film. Um, the, the sets that it takes place in are sort of poorly lit by design. And 3D, if you know anything about that technology, especially the polarized lens 3D that you see in, in most movie theaters, uh, it darkens the film even more, right? Because it now has to pass through a second polarizing filter before it gets to your eye. And, and I just don't think it had a great effect. I think it ended up muddying a lot of the visuals for people. Um, there were a lot of complaints and a lot of reviews that, you know, the 3D didn't really add anything to the movie, and, and it kind of doesn't. But... Um, now I, I, you know, I think my I think my copy of the film is 3D, but I don't again I don't have any 3D hardware to watch it on, and uh, and I I don't think it, you lose anything by not seeing it in 3D, but it was a big part of the marketing, you know. I don't know if that was a good idea, but it does say that it's not for the squeamish, which it isn't, and uh, it does have some incredible visuals. Right? There's some cool looking stuff in this movie that's. Uh, I think probably now has been more influential than we might have given it credit for at the time. Uh, and then our, the last review before we uh, we get into it uh, is Darren Franich in uh, Entertainment Weekly. Uh, Urban managed to give a credibly wry performance using little more than his gravelly imitation Eastwood voice in his chin. Um, because, and I pulled this one because this is the reason to watch this movie for I'm con as far as I'm concerned. And that is for an absolutely stellar performance as Judge Dredd by Carl Urban. Um, I, I, he, this, I'm a huge Carl Urban guy. I it, love Carl Urban and everything he does. This, but this he was a role kills it in this movie. where it was like, Carl Urban really can do things. He can act yeah. with a helmet on. I mean, you know, I, other things I've seen him and I've always been impressed, but then taking this on and being able to act through <laughs> just how you move the lower portion of your face that's really yeah. impressive it's just voice um the other thing that this you know entertainment weekly review mentions is the the clint eastwood connection because one of the major inspirations for judge dread as a character was dirty harry right especially the original dirty harry where you have a cop who has moved outside the realm of the law right who is is taking the law into his own hands and so um, there are a lot of references in the original comics to Clint Eastwood. Uh, I want to say like the, the mega city block that Dredd came from was named after a Clint Eastwood character in an episode of Gunsmoke that he played, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a huge Eastwood connection between Dredd and, um, you know, in the comics and, and Dredd in the film. And I think Urban definitely is playing in that sandbox and he pulls it off. Uh, again, Eastwood always had his face. Like Ur Urban has his mouth and his chin to to tell the story of the character, and he does it brilliantly. Uh, he basically anchors the entire film around himself, and because he is the center of this movie. Um, so the common problems that I read, uh, which most of these reviews hit, but we'll just solidify them here. Uh, people didn't care for the 3D component; thought it seemed uh, unnecessary. Uh, that it was overly gory and often just gross. Uh, and and the violence in this film certainly pushes into that realm uh, pretty early on. Uh, a fairly boilerplate plot, and several reviews that I read said it wasn't weird enough, um, which I have I have some 
thoughts on <laughs> as we get into. Um, because Judge Dredd is weird. It is. Right? It is, uh, it is, it is exceedingly weird. Uh, later in the, in the Dredd series, not even really that late in the series, they introduce the Dark Judges, uh, who apparently Garland's original treatment for this script had Judge Dredd facing off with Judge Death, who is his opposite, right? Um, uh, Judge Death, if I... And, it's been a while, but if I remember correctly, Judge Death, his whole thing is that you can't break the law if you're not alive. <laughs> so so you just kill everyone and then you'll have a perfect society. <laughs> um, and, and so that's like his goal. And, and Judge Dredd, you know, obviously disagrees with that on a, a moral level. Right. And so his original treatment wanted to have him facing off with Judge Death. But one thing that Garland realized very quickly is that the further you lean into those elements of Judge Dredd without first establishing the world that he lives in, the more isolating you are to your audience, right? Your audience is not going to be able to engage with those more fantastic elements until they understand the basic construction of the world, which is why, by all accounts, as he got, I think this was his fourth take, um, his fourth treatment of the material before they decided to move forward into the script phase, you can see why he scaled it back in the way that he did. Um, because this feels very much like a, I don't want to say a standard post-apocalyptic law story. Like it's, it's definitely more than that, but this is something that a viewer in 2012, even if you had no frame of reference for who judge dread is, and, and I'm assuming they kind of went based on that saying like, most people aren't going to know who this guy is. Um, this builds the world for you in such a way that within a couple of jumps, they probably could have gotten there. But for now, you I mean, there's no aliens running around, you know, there's no, I mean, Judge Dredd has even been crossed, he's been crossed over with Predator, he's been crossed over with Lobo from DC Universe, like, Dredd has been everywhere, and, and he kind of fits into all these different universes, but you could tell they really wanted to tell a much more straightforward Dredd story to get us started. Although this film does have psychics, which we will get into very quickly. Um, so people said it wasn't weird enough to be Judge Dredd. Okay. Uh, just shoot the bad guys that it never really slows down, takes a breath, which I think is a positive quality, but many people saw it as a bad thing. Um, it's, it's shocking to me how many people who watch action movies, especially critics, who when you've got an action movie that does slow down and take its time right, to try and build its characters, they complain about it being too slow. Just get back to the action, right? Like Hulk, yeah. right? Like Hulk tries to do that. It tries to tell a complicated story with characters, but then also be an action. And that movie like, was dragged out in the street, pissed on, and then set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's not, it doesn't have enough action. This one, which is almost pure action, once it gets going, people are like, hey man, where's all my character development? What is happening? And I understand that there's a balance, right? I think in, in a modern sort of action movie I think this is why John Wick has found some success is because it has found a decent blend of really really good action with some solid character work mostly because Keanu Reeves has, has sort of found his niche in terms of what he does well um, although John Wick 3 mm, gets a little more dicey right? We, once we introduce the Halle Berry quotient into the film well, we bit, need three of every movie <laughs> they get a little bit unbalanced for me. Uh, I still enjoyed it. John Wick 3 is great, but the more they've layered the mythology into that world and had to spend time building it, the the less I've, I've appreciated some of those things. But I, I still enjoy them immensely. Uh, but that was another common complaint, was that it just never slows down. It's just constant action. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Bang, bang, bang. 
kind of thing. And then finally, that there is no emotion to the film, right? It is cold and stark. A complaint that we have heard about Alex Garland properties several times already. Right? Um, so those are the common issues that we're going to need to address as we move forward to discuss dread. Um, so any thoughts on those? Uh, I know you, um, you said you have some, some words well, for a couple of them. It's mostly the complaint about the world building. Because I really question the usefulness of a review that doesn't do any research into science fiction. Science fiction frequently looks like that because that's the sort of horrifying vision that science fiction has for the future. Um, mm, very true. So I'm not necessarily bothered when that is included in the aesthetic of a film. Like, I can see the complaint. Sure, I see it, but I guess I'm a little more willing to believe that it fits given this material. Yeah. Um, um, because I really loved the design of Mega City 1 in this. I thought it looked so mm -hmm. cool. Um, yeah, totally. And and the cities themselves, like, you know, peach trees, that was exactly how I thought it would look and how I wanted it to look, even though I know they had to take a lot of, you know, shortcuts in order to make it look the way that it does in the film. Um, so I guess that's the one thing that's sticking with me, like, I don't get that. I don't see that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess let's let's just go ahead and get straight into it. Let's let's sort of just delve into our, our breakdown of the film and our sort of deep discussion of of what's represented there. So the, the film opens in at this point kind of a traditional Alex Garland wide. Uh, Alex Garland likes his establishing shots. Um, he loves sort of setting the world, right? Uh, he also loves his voiceover narration, which we get a lot of. <laughs> um, but here it's dread. And we push into Mega City One uh, from the Cursed Lands, right? There is a, a giant retaining wall that surrounds the city, and then we push in, and we get a really, uh, really a lot of nice composited special effects and, and visual effects shots. They obviously did some some real world photography. There's a lot of interlacing of various cities. Um, it feels very natural in terms of a city you know a lot of uh you know when you do like a big sprawling city right where it's just city as far as the eye can see it it's it tends to be a, a bit unimpressive and, it, and you can tell that it's fake because it doesn't really touch upon cities as we know them in the world today right if you've ever flown into new york city or los angeles and and sort of you know seen what those cities look like they're massive but you know they're they're not massive everywhere Right, like a lot of people who've never been to a city and actually seen what that looks like, it's clusters, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's clusters of bunches of stuff, but then there are these open areas full of like warehouses and three-story brownstones and, you know, the, these smaller things. And, and one of the things I really like about Mega City 1 is that I think the, the instinct, which would be much like the comic, is just to have all of the buildings be these massive superstructures. But that's unrealistic in terms of how a city would develop over time in my opinion and i think this film really grabs them because uh, they're all very distinct as well i think the impulse would be to save money by having all of the various uh structures look the same but they don't they all kind of have their own personality they've got their own thing about them because within the mega city i guess we should say as they push in we're quickly shown the blocks 
Mm -hmm. right? Which are basically cities within buildings. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the concepts that Garland was trying to express was, you know, in, in the Dread comic, the idea was inside of these massive buildings, you could live your whole life, right? Like that could be where you're born in the hospital and all of your, your facilities that you would ever need, your grocery store, your, you know, your, your DMV, whatever, everything would be inside that building. And, you know, theoretically, apart from maybe going to a job outside of the building, you would never need to go anywhere else, right? And there would be, um, I think the movie says around 50,000 people in each one. And this right, is... So each one's like a mid-sized city. You know, this is really interesting and kind Small of sophisticated city. commentary, in a way, on ghettoization. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just box them up. You know, Low-income housing in general, the way that we tend to make it you know, these separate, almost city-like structures. I mean, this is this is very much a, a vision of of a future we could have, scarily enough. Mm -hmm. um, it yeah, I makes mean, the, a lot the, of sense. Yeah, the mega blocks um, are, you know, they're, they're kind of like a Cabrini Green, you know, project housing facility and, and you know, all sort of segmented off and located in, in a central place. And you know, so we're, we're introduced to them very quickly. They stand next to what we would consider typical skyscrapers, and they just dwarf them. And there's these this great establishing shot where we see just a dozen of these things at various levels in the city. There's you know they're up in the clouds, being wiped out by smog and and who knows what else. Uh, just as a side note, all of the cities in the film, um, the the massive superstructures, are named after either 2080 creators or, you know, famous side characters from either Dread stories or other comics. In the actual Dread comics, they're named after, you know, like pop stars and stuff. Like they're supposed to be these like super ironic names, you know, it's like, oh, this is the the Matt, the Johnny Mathis block, you know, that kind of dumb stuff. Uh, because it's supposed to reference just how stupid this world is and how dumb people are and how willing they are to accept that they live in these absolute shitholes. <laughs> but it's the Johnny Mathis shithole, so it's fine. Um, but, you know, Alex Garland chose to, to sort of use them to reference, you know, famous 2080 Because honestly, that's figures a detail that really Yeah, it, it has no bearing on the story whatsoever, and, and they wouldn't get it. Um, and they don't need to. Uh, but the the central block that this film is is built around is called Peach Trees, um, and that's where where pretty much the entire movie takes place. This is kind of like the raid, right? I mean, it's it's a single building movie. Uh, the building happens to be this massive superstructure, but still, once they get inside the building, that's it for the rest of the movie. Uh, and he called it Peach Trees because that is the restaurant where Garland met with John Wagner to discuss the story the first time. <laughs> it's the Peach Trees restaurant in London. Um, <laughs> So a, a lot of cool, you know, like little little stuff here if you, you are a fan of 2000 AD and, and just this world in general. So we quickly get a shot of a massive drone flying over the city. We see sort of um, how the judges are shown the world and how they track crimes. And that is all interspersed with some, I'm presuming it's either a mixture of stock footage or something shot very quickly to emulate uh, sort of stock footage of uh, general unrest in the city, right? People burning things, you know, and, and pretty much it's just the Justice Department tracking people who break the law. And, and that is interspersed with Carl Urban, 
gearing up, right? So we get our, our very traditional like suiting up scene in one of these movies. Um, we're introduced to the Hall of Justice, this imposing black obelisk in the middle of the city, and Dredd is is preparing his equipment for the day, right? And this is supposed to be just another day in the life of Judge Dredd. Nothing special about it. Um, but it, again, uh, Urban's in shadow. We never see his face. We see him just a little bit of his hair from behind as he's putting on the the Dread gear. And then the film literally explodes. Dread <laughs> flies at the screen and explodes, which was a cool 3D effect uh, in the show. And then uh, we're taken in and we're immediately, a crime is being committed and Judge Dredd is dispatched to deal with it. Uh, but we get this massive surveillance state, right? Pretty much right off the bat that there is just groups of hundreds of people watching monitors, looking at satellite footage, looking at drone footage, and monitoring the activities of the populace in this uh, megacity, right? Um, so a couple of things we can talk about real quick, and that is uh, Dredd's costume. All right, I mentioned it once before already, but in the comic, Dredd has this incredible costume. Uh, a huge shoulder pauldron uh, that is a giant, you know, American eagle. His iconic helmet with a, an X across his eyes. Um, it's uh, black and red. In the original 2000 AD comic, his gloves are like green. His boots are green. Um, although that that changes from time to time. Sometimes they're black. Uh, but he has like all these chains on him, right? He's got like a chain that wraps around and does all this stuff so it's this really sort of like big over-the-top clunky costume and it's meant to be sort of cumbersome and over the top one of the things the movie does right away is establish that that's not going to happen right the 95 judge dread film tried to keep that eventually the the costume gets stripped down and he's basically just in like a i don't know like a button-up jacket or something but but they they have a couple of scenes where he's in like the full regalia with the big shoulder pads and, and everything but this film breaks all of that down immediately and pretty much turns dread's costume into a biker outfit right it's all these hard leathers and um uh, you know flak jackets and, and really the only like iconic piece of the equipment that makes the transition basically untouched is the helmet right he still has the shoulder pads but they're integrated he has his giant badge, which was connected with a chain in the original comic, is just sort of embedded in his chest. It does still have his name written on it, which is cool. Uh, I mean, it looks great, but it is a, it's a sort of very slick take on that costume to make it feel much more like police body armor, uh, which I liked, but apparently some people had issues with. I don't, what did you think about it? I loved the costume. I... I don't know, I was also a big fan of, of the redesign to the X-Men costumes in the first X-Men movie, which were also yeah, we unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I don't know if people want to take my comic book movie costume suggestions, <laughs> but I thought he looked really cool. And it yeah. it made it, I liked that it, it incorporated the motorcycle aspect a little bit more. Right. That he looked more like a biker. Um, he looks like a motorcycle cop. Yeah, like it, sure. it just, mm -hmm. it streamlined it a little bit. So I was a fan of the costume. I think it's a really smart modification. Uh, you know, at this point, if you've followed superhero movies, you know that most superhero costumes, apparently now it's getting to the point that it's not this bad, but like the original Captain America costume, for example, like you, you couldn't get him out of that thing 
uh, it took 20 minutes to undo all the pieces and take all the zippers off and, and do all this stuff. This feels much more accessible. It feels like a costume that a person could actually put like on it's, themselves. It's a uniform. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a real piece of equipment. And, and that I think I, I appreciated about it. While I, I love the over the top, the, the completely just ostentatious nature of the Judge Dredd costume in the comics, I think this is, is a really nice modification of it that makes it feel as if this person could actually exist. And, and immediately he's, he's in it. It looks good. It's, it's lit well. The materials are nice. It's got just the right amount of weathering on it. So it feels like a piece of thing that a piece of kit that he wears every day. You know, it's not brand new. It's not shiny. Um, and, and all of that works super well. And so then we're thrown immediately into a chase. Uh, basically dread is being sent after a group of people who are on drugs and they are driving a mid-80s Volkswagen van very quickly through traffic and uh, causing all kinds of, of heck and trouble. Shenanigans. And, uh, so then we get the, um, the Dread motorcycle, which, gosh, what is it? Is it called the, the Lawgiver's Gun? What is the name of his motorcycle? They all have names. Uh, it's fine. Uh, we don't have to, to worry about it right now. But basically... The motorcycle is awesome. All right. Again, they, they actually built the motorcycle. They made it real. Uh, Urban insisted upon driving it himself. Mm -hmm. um, so it had to be uh, it had to be put together in a way that he could actually ride it, that it wasn't just a stunt person. Uh, I imagine a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Judge Dredd motorcycle built for the 95 version was undrivable. Um and, uh, and and apparently couldn't turn because it was uh, it's the lawmaster. That's right. Um, it was just so big and so over the top. I mean, and it, it tried to emulate the the motorcycle in the comics, but it was so big that it was it was unusable. Whereas these they specifically designed them to be ridden and driven so they could do it for real. Um, so it's very cool. It's it's obviously just kind of an extended motorcycle. They've just kind of piled on to the front end of it. But he gives chase, uh, and then the van, uh, who they've just taken a drug, and we get our first taste of, of the world on slow-mo, which is the, the drug in the film, uh, they wipe out a pedestrian. And so now they have gone from a minor violation, a minor crime, to, to murder. And so Dredd uses the guns on the lawmaster to take the van out, and they crash right outside of peach trees and then head inside. Well, not well, not peach trees, but they crash right outside a building and then head inside. Only one of them survives the crash. Uh, so, the cinematography on this sequence is really good. The chase sequences are great. Um, you know, the first shots of Dread in action. A lot of them are shot sort of from waist down, really just kind of seeing him walk. And I, I just have to applaud Urban's physicality in this movie. He he's got to tell the story of this character with his body. All right, that's all he's got. Right? He's got his voice, he's got his mouth, and, and he's got his physicality. And one thing I love about Dread, and one, well, another side note, and, and I guess you can sort of tell me if you think you feel this way or not. I have, once I became aware of Judge Dread, which was much later in my life, I was like in my mid 20s, late 20s, when I really started sort of like reading Dread and caring about Dread. But 
retroactively now I realize just how much of RoboCop is yeah. Judge Dredd. Like RoboCop straight feels <laughs> like straight up a Dread adaptation in some ways, right? Like it's it's got more to it. It's it's cybernetic. But one of the things that I love about RoboCop in the infinite number of times that I've watched that movie is that the reason why RoboCop works is because of Peter Weller's physicality as RoboCop, right? And there are tons of videos where you can watch Peter Weller talk about that process. They brought in a professional choreographer from Juilliard that he had worked with on other projects and they basically worked for like a week to determine how he was going to move in that suit because the suit was bad right it was uncomfortable it, was it didn't move well it was painful and so they spent a lot of time on physicality and originally the the plan for robocop is that he would move in a very liquid way right because he's supposed to be this sort of synthetic machine and so they had all these ideas of him moving very smoothly and in these very coordinated methods and they got in the suit and none of that stuff worked. It all fell apart. And, and to the point that everybody was like, we're screwed because this doesn't work. This suit is broken. It's not going to work. What are we going to do? And Weller like spent another weekend with this guy just working out the movements. And Weller talked about like, basically they decided that the first thing that would ever move with RoboCop was his head. Like he would look at something, his head would move, and then his body would follow after his head moved, right? And if you watch the movie, he does it in every scene. And what it gives him is this purpose and determination to his movements that sell him as a character. Mm -hmm. And without that, if he moved in a more human way, I don't think that character would work. Because one of the things that changes about him towards the end of that movie is that that stuff starts to break down. Once the Murphy reasserts itself, some of those physicality motions, they, they scale back on them because his, his humanity is coming back. It's a shame we can't do an episode about a movie that's universally beloved. I know, right? I mean, we, we, hey, man, that's our podcast. We can talk about whatever the hell we want. But one of the things that I love about Dread is that he moves with constant purpose. No motion is extraneous. And you can tell from the moment that you see him on screen. He doesn't move his head. He doesn't move his mouth. He doesn't move his arm unless he is purposefully performing an action. Which fits and it's with that character. Absolutely. Everything and it that tells he does you is intentional. Everything. It's intentional and it's purposeful because he is the law. And the law must execute only when it's required right and it's and it's this really i i don't want to say it's a subtle thing like i think it's a really obvious thing in the movie but it's something that urban obviously decided to to sell in the character from the start uh and you can see it really i, I think in the original action scene there's a lot of okay here's a, a little little thing about me that i it really bothers me that this bothers me in <laughs> movies but i really hate wide shots of characters walking because most of the time a they look terrible and b the physicality of the individual rarely lives up to how they move when the camera is closer now this could be for lots of reasons right a lot of times those wide shots aren't the real actors right like especially if it's a shot from behind or above they're going to put a stunt double in there because it's cheaper put them in the costume, you put them in whatever, and you just have them walk left in front of the camera, right? It's easy. But for me, that 
physicality is really important and I want to see consistency from scene to scene to scene and shot to shot to shot. And a lot of times in those wide shots, that stuff breaks down. And, and if you go back and you watch like any of the Marvel movies, like you can see this all the time. Like the way that they move when the camera is far from them generally is not consistent with how they move when the camera is close. This movie, that is not a problem, right? Every scene that Dredd is in, he is walking the same way. He is, it's, it's, the, it's the hunch of his shoulders. It's the composure of the, the rigidity of his back. Right, like that stuff is consistent in every single shot. Even the way that he holds his gun in repose, right? The gun is never at his side. The gun is never flailing as he runs. The gun is always two hands, slightly to the left and pointed <laughs> down, which is if, if you are a trained person that knows how to handle guns, that's how they train you to run with a gun. Right, you should never be pointing it down at the ground because what if you shoot yourself in the foot, you freaking idiot! <laughs> right, you should never point it in the air because what if there's something above you? Right, like it's there's there's really specific things, and you can tell that Urban and, and the director and and probably everybody who was involved in the project had made these very specific decisions about the character, but the physicality sells who the character is from the moment that you see him, and it's great, right? Because it becomes dependable, you know what he's going to do and how he's going to behave. And I just love it from the start to the finish. He's, he's great. It's, it's one of my favorite things about the movie, but, um, okay. So let's, let's kind of continue the story. So dread chases these guys down. Uh, the dude goes into a, uh, a Chinese restaurant, I guess, or, or at least it's, it's the bottom level of one of these mega blocks, mega cities. Um, or mega blocks within the city. And he takes a hostage. Uh, Judge uh, Dredd approaches. They have a brief exchange where we get, I mean, Urban has some great lines in this movie. We talked a little bit last week with Tron about how a lot of the one-liners don't really land, right? They don't, you know, they don't add anything to the character. They don't really do much to, you know, put a nice little tag on the end of a scene. It's just like a, oh, hell yeah, right? Like that kind of thing. Whereas all of Judge Dredd's one-liners are perfect. Uh, and I attribute this exclusively to Alex Garland, because Alex Garland is actually really good at one-liners and scene tags. Like, he's very good at them. And, and it's really obvious here. So the, the confrontation ends. He takes the hostage. He sort of tells him what his judgment is, right? Gives the guy, a, a, I guess, a bit of a choice. You know, how do you want to handle this sort of thing? Guy pisses him off, and he... Uh, switches to hot shot rounds, which are, uh, I guess, basically incendiary bullets that uh, burn on contact, and he shoots the guy in the head and burns his head off. And it looks uh, which awesome. is, it looks really good, <laughs> man. I mean, it's, it's for me. It's, I mean, it's not like we see a lot of people with like a hot coal shoved into their mouth and then burning through their brains all the time, but you know, it ranks up there in terms of like head deformation scenes. It ranks up there with the, you know, the the head melting and. Raiders of the Lost Ark for me in terms of how good it looks and uh, sort of how iconic the moment feels. Um, but he says, yeah, I heard you hot shot. And he uses that to, to establish, well, basically the Garland and, and the filmmakers used it to establish that Judge Dredd's weapon is, is a multifunction weapon and it's activated by his voice. Uh, so he changes it to the hot shot rounds and then, then kills the guy. 
Uh, then we get this weird cleanup scene, uh, which you get the, the idea that this kind of stuff happens a lot. <laughs> And people die in violent ways all the time. There's blood everywhere. And, you know, you just kind of send in the sweeper robot and the guy and they clean it up and dispose of the bodies and everybody goes about their day. Uh, it, so it's, it's a little bit disturbing. Like it's one of those little, little winks and nudges to the fact that this system is, is not really functional, right? It's holding things together, but the world is is truly and genuinely screwed. But that kind of darkly um, comedic moment is, again, Paul Verhoeven, I guess, is going to come up a lot, um, mm-hmm. that would you would find in one of his films. That right. at the time, they were sort of thought of in the same way. People looked at RoboCop like, this is just excessive. Um, but now, but it's actually <laughs> smart. It's a smart and careful satirization. Yeah, and now and we give it the the sort of respect and, and consideration that it deserves. And I wonder if Dread will be one of those films. I I, I hope so. I mean, I guess we have you know yet to see, but um, yeah, I guess the only way that it could have been more clear is if instead of just the shots of the bodies. You know, if it was like a news <laughs> and a violent outbreak in Peachtree's today was rounded out by the, 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 the floor cleaners, you know, or whatever, but you know, we need that for it to be really he? for hope. What is he? What Where is did he? he come from? <laughs> right. Um, but so we quickly, so that's our, our cold open, if you will, just to establish who Dredd is, what's the world like, what are his tools, what's his equipment, um, and who is this guy? Uh, and there are some genuinely, you know, dark comedic moments in that sequence, but really the film begins when we're introduced to uh, uh, Judge Anderson, and Judge Anderson is is going to be teamed up with Dread for um, basically her final evaluation. Right, she's made it through the academy, I suppose, and now she has to actually go out into the field with a judge and be assessed to determine whether or not she's capable of actually wearing the badge. And so uh, Anderson is assigned to Dread, uh, and the main reason why they are interested in bringing her into the, the agency or into the Justice Department is because she is a psychic, right? Um, so Judge Dredd, as we mentioned before, is a very weird universe. There's aliens, there's demon monsters, there's multidimensional beings, and there are also psychics. And that's what Anderson is. And the only real moment of potential dread background or history is that is anderson when she tries to read dread's mind and then he kind of shuts her out uh, which is a pretty cool sequence too but so they're thrown into the world together uh the chief is um interested in in sort of seeing what she's capable of mostly because of her her psychic abilities so they go out there's a call uh, for some stuff at Peach Trees, and we get a quick introduction to uh, Lena Headey's character, Mama. So, within these city blocks, right, there are these sort of sealed off ecosystems, right? You can have entire worlds inside these places that don't exist anywhere else. And so, Lena Headey is the, the gang leader in power inside of Peach Trees, uh, this large city block. And uh, she is the purveyor, the primary purveyor, as we come to find out, of the newest drug on the Mega City One market, which is called Slow Mo. Uh, the guys who were 
driving the van in the opening. We're doing slow-mo, and now we see that Mama is also a... She partakes in her own brand, if you want to call it that. And so slow-mo's effect, and really one of the most unique and interesting visual components of the film is that it slows time down. It accelerates your brain function, but in doing so makes time seem to slow down. So you get a hyper awareness of the world around you. And so Mama is taking a bath and she's flinging water and she's taking a hit of slow-mo and we sort of get these brilliantly it's visual moments. <laughs> and, and by all accounts, Garland and the special effects team uh, worked on this for a long time, right down to color saturations and and you know how the 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 lens interacted with light and sort of the blur effects they used. There was a lot of thought and consideration in the slow mo effects, and you can tell because the final effect is striking, right? For me, a thing that is is often frustrating for me in film is is how filmmakers choose to represent altered brain function, right? You know, drug use, hallucinations, right? And it's you know, you've got like your Terry Gilliams who, who basically just tend to show it to you as if it's real, but there are all of these very subtle elements that are strange that remind you that something's off, right? Like 12 Monkeys, where you've got characters who are you know, ostensibly insane, but the world that we see is still treated very realistically. And Gilliam loves that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you've got the, the more typical sort of, I'm going to go ahead and call it like TV director who's like, I'm just going to blur this. And I'm going to increase the bouquet and I'm going to rack focus this super close. And, you know, just like these really typical, like, oh, I'm drunk effects. And I find them really boring. Like, that's my problem. So when we get an extended drug use sequence in a movie, I'm usually like, okay, all right. Yeah, it's smeary. It's blurry. Uh, it's a weird color. Yep, sure is on drugs. Oh, that's weird. That okay. is some drugs. Moving on, right? Like, it's it's not visually interesting. And I feel like most often it fails to capture the true experience that a human being has while under the effects of a drug. Especially a, 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 a mind-altering drug. Like, people who try to, to visually demonstrate what something like LSD use might be like. It's like... No, I don't think you're grabbing this, you know. And, but this, this slow-mo effect, aside from the fact that they very specifically define what the drug is and what it's trying to do and then just execute on that, um, it's, it's a really, really beautiful effect. And it's, it's fun to watch, right? Even if I don't care about what's happening with these characters using drugs, like it's just visually interesting enough to keep my attention. And that is, I'm so thankful for it. I'm just like, thank you. Thank you, filmmakers. It's so nice. Um, but so they, uh, we get this scene, and, and basically it establishes very quickly that Mama is a force to be reckoned with. And um, I, I guess let's go ahead and, and talk just real briefly about Mama as a character, because uh, she's the most problematic element of this movie for me. Um, she is the villain. There is never any question about Mama being the villain. Uh, she is uh, the scene right after she does the slow-mo she gets out of the bath and she's told by one of her underlings her you know underling number one I don't, I don't know his name Oliver maybe uh, he tells her that you know some people have have shown up that weren't supposed to be there they're dealing something they shouldn't supposed to be dealing and uh, she says skin them and then throw them off the balcony right and so I, I, one thing I love about Garland is that he 
does his world building and his exposition in the midst of important actual things happening. Um, you know, it's very rarely just characters standing around and saying things. It does. It happens. And this movie has examples of those. But he's very good at blending all of these elements together. So we need to establish the size and scale of these, you know, things. We also need to establish that Mama is at the top, right? That's where she lives. So she is difficult to get to. And we also need to establish that she is a villain. And so the way that we do a bunch of those things all at once is she has these guys that have done her wrong for whatever reason. So she hurls them off the building and we get a real sense of scale. And then we get a understanding of how slow-mo could be used as a torture device because these guys, before they're thrown off this building, they're given a hit of slow-mo so that the experience of them falling is even more intense, right? And, and potentially feels like it takes an eternity for them to finally hit the ground. So Mama's quickly established as bad. Her position in this block and hierarchy is established very quickly. Uh, and then, of course, the, the level of brutality that she is capable of is also established. So a bunch of really cool things being layered on top here. And then we get a great sort of push-down shot from the top of the building down to where the bodies have hit. Uh, some really good gore effects as well. I mean, we actually get a look at these smashed bodies that have fallen, I don't know, what is it, 80 stories or something? Yeah. Um, or No, it's even more than that. It's, it's thousands, thousands of stories. But so, um, you know, Dredd has decided that this is the, the, this is the crime that they're going to investigate. Anderson, you know, sort of leads it in that direction. Um, and so you can really see in the first sequences, they're sort of establishing who Mama is and, and who these guys were. You can see that the, uh, the, the sort of bottom level of the block is an outside structure. It's the ones where you can tell the most. You can kind of just see the lighting coming down. But it all works well. You know, but you can tell that they're they're working with limited material. Uh, but so in any case, uh, let's talk a bit about Mama, right? So her brutality is established. She's violent. She's cruel. But we find out very quickly that she used to be a prostitute. Um, she had you know many convictions for it, and then we get a, a little sort of again. I, I feel like this is a reshoot, uh, or elements of it are. Uh, a little sort of backstory of how she took over Peachtrees from all of the other gangs that used to run in Peachtrees, uh, including, and all of these are references to the, the comic, including the judged, which are people mm -hmm. who had been judged in the <laughs> past and now have tattooed their faces to look like judges. Um, so she, she murders all of those gangs. She takes over Peachtrees and uh, becomes the sort of single rule of law. And it's a very violent scene. Uh, we see her uh, uh, stabbing out uh, Domhnall Gleeson's eyes, uh, so presumably she can turn him into some kind of cyborg guy. That is important later. But yet at the same time, we do have this undercurrent of she was abused, she was a, a victim of a, a horrific system who, within that system, found a way to both protect herself and to elevate her status. So for me, and even watching it for the very first time in the film, I could feel that there were elements of this movie that wanted me to, to kind of feel bad for her, to sympathize with her, at least marginally. Um, what about you? Like, what are, what are your thoughts on Mama? Um, I don't, 
I didn't sympathize with her. I really, I liked the character because I liked that she was kind of savage and nasty and she had adopted, you know, a more brutal way of getting things done. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like, I just like any time that they put, you know, a female character in the position of being really, really savage like that. That's just really interesting to me. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, see Garland, it very much. No, it definitely not. And I don't know. Garland for me isn't always great at writing women characters. He he includes them in all of his projects, and and he spends a lot of time developing them. Like I, I don't know. I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm dissing his efforts here because I I don't want it to be that. But I feel like Mama is a character that we do understand immediately that she's dangerous. She's, she's powerful. And I guess it's really just that bit of backstory. I almost kind of wish we didn't get it because I would rather see her as this incredibly powerful villain character without that added dimension. Not that I don't want those characters to have dimensionality, right? I mean, one of the things that this movie is often accused of is that all the characters are one dimensional, that they don't have much depth. But with Mama, I just, I don't understand what it adds to her beyond just showing that she's, she's very capable and that she has, you know, come from bad circumstance and tried to create better circumstance for herself. And so, I mean, I think Lena Headey is, as this is a good project for her. This is a, a year after Game of Thrones started, and, which was really where her career sort of obviously took off. Um, I don't like her in Game of Thrones. Um, I, I like her in this, though. And maybe it's that savagery. I think she really does play that well. Uh, and that's certainly a part of Cersei Lannister as well. But um, in this film, I, I think she she does some really, really great stuff. And uh, it's kind of, I don't want to say forgotten in her filmography at this point, but it's definitely not one that you find people talking about in terms of Lena Headey performances. I enjoyed her creepy romance. I thought she played that really well. Of yeah, she's dark in this movie. Like this is a this is a, a vile character um, who does terrible things. And I love that her nickname is Mama, which has a lot of suggestions that come along with it. Um, and like I said, her backstory didn't necessarily make me sympathize with her because you know she's turning around and she's also a terrible person. But I did like yeah. that as a villain, she has a history. She's not just sort of waking up one day and deciding I'm going to be the top gang leader in Peach Trees. There is a right. little bit of motivation no. for it. Yeah. And I like that and, it didn't that harp on it too much. Sure. I feel like if they had had like a really emotional scene where she's like, I was a prostitute. And I had to find right. my way to the yeah. top. It's that like would have that. killed it. Um, and I think, I think, I don't know. Again, it's it's difficult for me to articulate exactly. A lot of my issue with Mama probably is actually stemming from the ending. I'm kind of blending how she ends into the work that's being done to establish her here. Um, 
but we'll we'll get there. In any case, I, I like her as a villain. I think she's a fantastic villain for the film, and I like that she's uncompromising. And I and I do like that Garland doesn't rely upon that or rely too heavily upon that abused woman becomes violent psychopath, right? Because uh, frankly, at this point, that's almost a trope. Yeah. And and I'm glad that he doesn't completely depend upon that to build her character and maybe the fact that he has it in there at all is what i'm really coming back to because it's it's just such a he even plays with it a bit in uh, ex machina but it's it's an artificial intelligence that's been abused and now sort of rises up right so it, again it's it, there's a couple of different components that are, are working here for me and and i don't know if they all land completely but i think that mama is established well as a villain um, and, and we kind of get her from the start. There are some elements of Lena Headey's performance that I, she's a, she's playing mama as kind of a tweaker, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, you would think that as the mastermind of this plan, she would not necessarily fall into it, the trap of being addicted to her own drug, but she is, which I think is another sort of fascinating element. Um, that I, I don't know if it's a choice that I would have taken in terms of the performance, but she's constantly like picking at her arms and, and, you know, doing the things that you would kind of expect a quote unquote tweaker to do. Um, but so after she's established uh, very quickly, the judges get to work, uh, we get some exposition on mama and then uh, they sort of do their first, if you want to call it a drug bust, it's more of like a violent drug murder party, but they wind up blowing the door and, um, killing a bunch of people who are taking slow-mo in a, another gorgeous slow-mo scene with lots of CG blood, uh, faces getting blown off, uh, you know, people being, uh, the, the explosive charge on the door sort of blowing them in slow motion. It's, it's a, a really people glorious People looking like a wind tunnel. Just... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just such an effective moment. And, and basically the two judges, uh, they take a prisoner. And this is where everything begins to unravel for Mama. And she begins to have to take some very extreme uh, measures because this person that they have captured, unbeknownst to the judges, has a tremendous amount of knowledge about Mama's operations. And uh, they can't afford to have this guy taken back to the Hall of Justice and interrogated. If he's interrogated, he will undoubtedly break and then deliver information that uh, she can't afford to have get out to the judges. So they execute a plan very quickly. Obviously, one they had you know, sort of prepared as a contingency. We're introduced to Don Hall Gleason's hacker character officially. He's kind of her tech guy. He's the guy in the chair, if you want to call him that. Uh, his eyes, which she had torn out, have now been replaced by some sort of cybernetically enhanced eyes, presumably to give him uh, better, you know, target acquisition he's able to see more things and they the look monitors, that kind of stuff. <laughs> they're yeah they they look bad they look like they were you know they look like they were installed in a back alley and, and <laughs> never had the chance to heal properly but so uh in essence what they do is they fool the hall of justice into thinking that they are doing a i guess a tornado siren check if you want to call it that <laughs> but basically like a uh a a warning uh, it's like a defense system that they can uh, that they can create or, or they can do to sort of lock the city down um, and keep people from getting in and out. So they convince the judges that this is some sort of planned 
uh, test of that system and use it to trap everyone inside. So pretty much uh, all of these giant stone shutters come down and the judge, uh, Judge Dredd and Judge Anderson are trapped inside. And, and, and that's it. Now the we're inside a single structure movie has begun, right? And so Mama has decided to wage war on these two judges to prevent them from getting out and uh, revealing her the secrets of her drug trade. So uh, it's a really, really good conceit. And I could see the elevator pitch for this to studios being this is the raid, but in the post-apocalypse and with guns or more guns. <laughs> uh, because now like the, the parameters of the film are nicely defined and very clear because Judge Dredd is not going to be getting out of this building until he confronts and defeats Mama. Um, so it's a great setup. It's simple. It's straightforward. Generates a lot of tension. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's the kind of... If you're writing a movie and you know you're not going to have a tremendous budget, this is what you want to do in order to give yourself a very workable set of parameters. You know, it's, it's a one-location movie, right? It's a haunted house movie from here on out. Um, we've established the world. Now we are trapped inside a very specific sliver and, of that world. And I have to defend the interior shot choices, no matter what anyone says about them. Um, I defend them because they are claustrophobic. The entire movie makes me feel like I'm trapped in a building. Um, and that's really impressive. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the few moments where they actually make it outside of Peachtree's and see the outside after it's been locked down, those are almost a relief just to see the outside again because it, all of everything feels like it's in these very cramped rooms and cramped spaces and tight hallways. Um, but the effect is almost aiding to that tension build um, of them being stuck and inside peach trees. I thought those were things that played really well together. Yeah, and, and again, it makes for some very smart production design choices because uh, I guess very famously they built a sort of intersecting corner. They built like three or four levels of that. And then they just do the 2001 thing where they shoot it from all these different angles. But it's it's always the same set. You know, they replace the signs, they... they paint the doors a different color, they slightly angle the set in a different way, and, and now you have a different section of the building that you're showing. And they do tons of that stuff. And, and it just works super well. It makes this place feel larger than it really was, and it does give you that sense of scale and claustrophobia. Everything's tight, everything's similar. Um, it, it, again, it's, it's sort of making the absolute best of your production design choices uh, pretty much from the get-go and knowing what you had to work with and, and then making that go. So Mama's plan, or her way to try and deal with the judges without having to get her hands too dirty, is to basically tell everybody in Peach Trees that you know there will be a reward for the judges and that she's not going to open the place back up until they're dead. And so basically the first sort of major action sequences that we get in the film are the judges, primarily Dread, dealing with all of these just random people from the building who either have worked for Mama in the past or, you know, want their freedom to be restored. So they are choosing to sort of try and hunt down uh, Dredd. And so as somebody who knows who Dredd is, 
you know immediately that all these people are dead. Like, there's no chance that they're going to be able to take him down. But I, I think this, again, reinforces just how dangerous of a figure that Dredd is very quickly. Uh, and then also establishes, I guess, the control that Mama has over the populace of peach trees. Uh, unbeknownst to everybody in the outside world, like, uh, you know, when Dredd and, and Anderson walked into this world, they had no idea that this is what they were going to find. So I like that because it reinforces that kind of microcosm concept, right? That we're in a world inside a world. And it's, it's just a really neat idea that you would be so easy to not execute well in, in this context. But they, they really pull it off. So there's a series of confrontations. Uh, we get to see more of Dredd's armaments, uh, you know, a little bit more of his gun. They carry like tear gas and stuff with them. They have respirators, right? So their kit is very good. It's very, it feels very Batman, right? Like it just definitely has that feel to it. Um, but they're capable of, of fending off all of these random people. And then we get a little bit of, I don't know, it, basically a bunch of these random people come out. They end up killing this, uh, I, I don't even know what his name is, it's like dude in polo shirt. He's a polo shirt guy. Uh, but basically, we they later are sort of given shelter by a woman and her child, and they find out that you know polo shirt guy was her husband. And they, they, summarily, they summarily judged and murdered him <laughs> without even really thinking twice about it. And uh, they don't really tell her that. And she's still expecting him to come home and all this stuff. But... Uh, you know, so there, there's not a lot to talk about here. Basically, there's mowing people down and continuing to try and move upward through the facility. The only thing that makes it a little bit tougher is they've got this drug dealer in tow, and he's constantly trying to slow them down or cause problems. And, uh, you know, Dredd just kind of has this, this again, this, like, constant forward march that's... Uh, if, if you're not on board for it at this point, I would say you're probably going to be done with this movie pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, like, because the tone and the cadence of the movie is basically established here. And this is just going to be it for the rest of it. Like, Judge is going to keep moving forward. He's got a lot of bullets. And he is going to shoot them at people and they are going to die. And you're never going to really question whether or not he's going to be successful at it. Because pretty much from the start, you know, this dude is an incredible powerful figure and he is not going to give up well the tagline and for the film is judgment is coming like he is it's right. not going to stop <laughs> and and again urban is just he's all about it man like you can tell supposedly he was so committed to this emotionless passive force of nature that he refused to do anything else while he was on set um, so he maintained that composure. He kept the helmet on to the point that when people would crack jokes, he would just stare at them down, right? Like he would just turn his head and stare at them until they stopped laughing. Um, and you know, I've, I've never really thought of Carl Urban as like a powerful method actor in that way. You know, he's no Daniel Day Lewis, I suppose, <laughs> but he was so committed to maintaining that composure that he he understood that the character is that composure right like he literally is that and if you cannot sell that then the character doesn't work that's why Pretty 95 judge dread did not work stallone right. could it, not sell that character at all he could not be that guy 
right? He had to bring in the emotion. He had to bring in the over the top, right? It's not, I am the law. It's, I am the law, <laughs> right? It, you know, it's, it's got all that on top of it. And so, you know, we continue moving through. Uh, we get a little bit more. Uh, Olivia Thurlby, I think, is, is really great in this. I was not super familiar with her work prior to seeing her in this movie. Uh, she has been in a, a tremendous number of things, I guess, most famously the uh, L word. She was in Juno. You know, she had a couple of uh, a couple of other things there. She was in Bored to Death for a little while, um, you know, but but I, I just didn't have a ton of with her work. But she's really good in this. Uh, Anderson is, is supposed to be the the wide eyed. I don't know how the world works. I cannot I literally can't understand how somebody could live in this world and be surprised by any of the things that she witnesses in this movie. Like, I, I guess we're supposed to think she's a little bit sheltered. She's obviously got some sort of past family tragedy. That's, that's sort of referenced a few times, but ultimately she, uh, you know, she's taken aback by the violence that she witnesses in peach trees. Um, and it is kind of set up in the beginning when we meet her, that that is their hesitance to make her a judge. Is that right. they think is, she can't handle yeah. that aspect of it. There is some question about whether or not she can actually handle the day-to-day -day tragedy of, of walking through Mega City 1 as a judge. And, and this plays out, right? Ju I love that Dredd sort of lays out the rules for passing pretty much right at the beginning, and it's all this very basic stuff, you know, like don't lose your gun, you know, always follow through on your judgments, these you know, really typical things. Uh, that don't really come to matter towards the end of it. But yet, you know, she doesn't want to wear her helmet because it lowers her psychic ability. And that's, oh man, that's such a great line. Where she <laughs> says, oh, oh, the helmets lower my psychic ability. And he's like, bullet to your brain probably would too. You know, like, <laughs> like that kind of, that kind of thing is just awesome. But uh, we get a very, you know, quick understanding of how she can sort of dip into people's minds and, see things and uh, it's it's used a little bit as a crutch in the movie to give us exposition and background in a couple of circumstances but fortunately it's restrained right like it's the driving force is dread moving from floor to floor moving from level to level and only rarely is is it you know the psychic being like we have to turn left right that kind of thing and i really appreciated that because anytime, well, we talked about a little bit with Twilight a couple weeks ago, where, you know, the psychic character is only psychic when the plot demands that she be psychic so yeah. that we know what to do next. And and I love that Garland doesn't fall back on that as a screenwriting device, because I think it would have gotten really old really quickly. Uh, because Dredd doesn't need that. And, and that's the thing, like, uh, I like that Garland chose Anderson to be his, his you know, person he's got to explain stuff to stuff to in this uh you know it's not rob schneider so <laughs> thumbs up there um but I, I like that he chose you know sort of bring that character into because she is a character from the comics right she wasn't invented right. for the film she is a part of this universe she's a psychic in that in the comics as well but i like that he uses her as that that person, but the important thing that we have to remember, and I think that Garland was smart to remember, is that Dredd doesn't need a partner. He doesn't need her to tell him what to do next. He knows what to do next, and he's gonna do it. And so she really is there as the, and he comes to appreciate what she can bring to the table, not be dependent upon that skill. And, and I think that is really nice, nicely balanced. When it could have been 
completely wrong. And in some ways diminished dread is the central character, right? Which I think a lot of these, you know, the original dread, I think did this a lot too, because we've got the Armand Asante character in there that gets brought in. And we've got uh, judge Hershey in the original film. And, and all they really do is serve to diminish dread as the central driving force of the plot, right? That his decision-making process, his un, unforgivable nature, his, his unmistakable morality is what's propelling this story forward. And, and he's, he's careful to remember that here, and, and I, I like that. Because it then allows Anderson to be her own character who has her own sense of agency. She's not just at Judge Dredd's beck and call. She can also sort of discover what she wants to discover, and she can use her powers when she sees fit. And I, I really like the way that that character balance works. And I like that Dredd slowly and begrudgingly kind of comes to appreciate her. Right? He's obviously not psyched about this assignment, but by the end of it, you can tell that he's developed, I don't want to say affection, because that is, is not what he has developed for her, but he has developed a tolerance for her presence. And I think that that, out of somebody like Dredd, is probably the best you can ask for. But, uh, so, I mean, how, how did you feel about Anderson as a character in this film. How do you think she was handled? I like that, uh, like you were mentioning, that she didn't have any psychic moments where she's telling us, you know, exposition. I guess I was really concerned that she would be an expository device, and instead she's she's not. She's just along for the ride. <clears throat> but I do like the scenes where she exercises her psychic powers those mm -hmm. are some of my favorites because they're so they're just really well done they're very disorienting and the time that she the times that she messes with Kay's head specifically I really like those um because it shows how a psychic could possibly morph those powers into something useful as a judge um and that's that's where her psychic abilities end up being helpful. Not as, like you said, that sort of, oh, we should turn left in the hallway, we should go here, we should do this. Um, instead, she uses it to kind of judge people's character, help her supposedly, I guess, make a more informed decision when she judges someone. Um, yeah. But I, I did like those sequences a lot. Yeah, they're very, um, again, you know representing non-reality on film is, is a very wide field and and people have taken there are certain sort of shortcuts that filmmakers seem to to sort of fall upon you know lots of uh, bright white lights and blowouts quick transitions cuts you know cuts that don't logically connect together like you would see in traditional editing but i like that garland sort of plays with all of those things uh, or Travis, again, we don't know exactly who <laughs> put these together. Uh, but I like that they kind of play with all of those tropes and then all of them get kind of mixed up in in the, the psychic sequences in this film. Uh, the most extensive one is the one where she psychically reads Kay to um, get a couple final pieces of information that they do need to move forward that uh, he knows. But uh, the sequences are, are handled pretty well. Uh, mostly because they do some work beforehand to establish that Kay is trying to get under her skin by 
you know, forcing her to envision violent and, and overtly sexual and, you know, these, these very disturbing pieces of imagery. And he's constantly trying to push that boundary with her. And, and he realizes that he can kind of get to her. And then when they finally do connect psychically, he believes that that is going to give him the leg up to, to dominate her, which he is almost successful at. So, um, you know, moving through this next sequence, basically dread is sort of moving through the hallways. He's assessing the situation and then mama and her crew set up what is probably the biggest single action set piece in the film. Uh, and that is, uh, Basically, they set up a bunch of chain guns, uh, but like super future chain guns, and <laughs> they decide guns. they have future chain guns, and and they decide that they are going to obliterate an entire. Uh, I think Dread eventually calls it a, a quadrant, but they're gonna they decide to obliterate an entire section of floors that they know Dread roughly is on, and uh, and in the hopes of just killing him, ending this, and then being able to to move forward. But in doing so, they are going to to kill hundreds, thousands. I mean, we don't, we see a lot of people die in this sequence, and you know it's 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 brutal. Like the basically, they just wave these chain guns over these whole things. Everybody's trying to get out of the way. Mama looks on. Uh, they. They had some like reflection in her eyes is like the tracer rounds are making the air light up and she's just like got these a demon eyes for lack of a better term, I guess. But um, I mean, just lays waste to this entire section of the building. Dread barely makes it out. He uses some high explosive rounds to exploit a crack in the wall to uh, get to the outside where people have taken these outcroppings and turned them into skate ramps, which seems like a bad choice. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, these things are thousands of feet in the air and these kids are like doing skate tricks on the edge of them and stuff. Well, you know, uh, they, I guess, they you know. skate up on, on these dangerous heights and, and our generation eats Tide Pods. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all the same. Um, but we get a lot of, uh, you know, Dom Hall Gleason uh, is watching all this happen on the monitors and even he's horrified. So we're, we're sort of meant to understand that for Mama, who is this incredibly violent and incredibly powerful figure, the, even, this is even a, a, a cut above what she's done before, right? Like she is, is, is this confrontation with the judges has pushed her to a new level of brutality, um, that even the people who surround her are somewhat surprised by. Uh, so they escape, they get out uh, of, of this sequence, and again, it's, it's really well done. I mean, the effects are mostly practical. They're doing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of simple, like, small charge explosions as the rounds are going through walls and things. And then there is some overlay work that they do to show the tracers kind of flying around. But um, again, a sequence like this in a big budget action movie would be kind of expected in a movie with a budget like this. It's, it's a really impressive scene, but so they get out, um, being outside of the building, they can now finally connect back to control and, and let them know what's going on. Because at this point they've been cut off. They haven't been able to communicate the real situation inside peach trees. And the judges have been convinced that this is all just a, a test of their lockdown system. So they're finally able to to report back. They tell them what's going on, and uh, Control says that they've got people coming. They've got backup on the way, and the judge just needs to stay alive. 
so this devastating scene, uh, you know, we get a, a couple of shots of, you know, people sort of crawling out of the rubble. And then all of Mama's crew goes over to the other side that they've just obliterated to search for Dredd's, uh, for uh, Judge Dredd's body uh, to verify his death. And then we get, uh, I don't know, I laughed out loud in the theater, but basically like her little main henchman guy, henchman number one, he, you know, takes this team in, they encounter the judge and, and then he kills everybody. Of course. (laughs) And, and then we are, we are, are treated to this lovely scene of him just like grabbing this guy by his belt walking him down the hallway and then just summarily throwing him off the side of the building <laughs> or throwing him into the center of the building and and he just falls and dies and then he just looks mama in the face and walks away <laughs> like like she's standing right there he could have shot her he could have done a lot of things but he's just like oh this is what it's gonna be huh all right cool and uh and just kills her henchman in this completely unemotional absolutely yep this was the inevitable thing that was going to happen i guess and and, And, you know it's scenes like that kind of highlight that mama and dread are supposed to be foils to each other that you know dread has this uncompromising morality and mama is of course completely without her own set of morals she is uncompromisingly immoral but yet they exercise uh, justice in exactly the same way right i mean this movie is very fond of exploiting its its buildings by having people throw (laughs) off of them uh uh one of the things there's a little i don't know if it's an intentional joke it feels like a, a joke that alex garland would find funny but mama is destined to meet a similar end and um I kind of love because he says, you know, he, he delivers her judgment, says, do you have a, anything to say? You know, do you have a response? She doesn't say anything because he just hit her up with slow-mo and he goes defense noted. And then he throws her out the window. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a word person and you like words, uh, one word that you'll inevitably run across going through a graduate education in literature is defenestration. <laughs> <laughs> And so he's like defense noted, and then he defenestrates her. <laughs> um, and again, it, it, I have no idea if that's intentional, but it's it's just one of those like, all right, funny <laughs> puns. Puns, they're fun, right? Words. So um, they escape that. Uh, Mama feels, you know, enraged that they have made it. I do love that uh, they want to be in a school, right? So again, they're sort of reinforcing the idea that this building is is everything, right? Everything you need is in the building, including the school. And we actually get to see the new American flag in the school, which is hanging by the door in one of the rooms they wind up in. And it only has six stars re- representing the six mega states that make up America now. And, and I just, I love those little details. I mean, I know they're really obvious details. If you're doing set design for a movie like Dredd, you're going to incorporate that stuff. But but it's shocking the number of it's prop so cool. and set designers that don't do that. Or, or maybe aren't even tasked with doing that. Yeah, I mean, and it's not like they would have had to. You know, it's it's just something they chose. They're, you know, they're, they're saying, okay, this is a classroom in the future. I also love that there is a smart board in that room. And it's straight up, it is straight up a smart board. Like if you've yeah. done anything in education, you know what a smart board looks like. And it is disgusting. It looks like somebody's dumped coffee all over 
It's great. It looks like my smartboard. Um, it looks like the smartboard in a real school. Um, but so they escape that that confrontation and and they realize now if if Mama is willing to go to these depths to get this guy that they have have captured, that he must know something something more than what this, you know, they thought he was just a low level drug dealer, right? Somebody that knew a little bit about what was going on. But what they realize now is that he must know far more than, than they were thinking. And so we get really um, the most extensive sort of psychic scene between Anderson and key. And a lot of really cool effects here. Again, there's some blurring. There's a lot of, uh, light effects, you know, they're they're in sort of a dark black room and things kind of pop in and out of existence. Uh, there's a haze and a trail that's a little bit reminiscent of the slow-mo effect, but again, it's kind of a nice, interesting modification. One thing that I really think is cool, and I do think this is intentional, is it's obvious that Anderson is in control of this scene, but she lets Key, because he's been sort of pushing her buttons this entire time, because she was sort of tasked with watching him while Dredd is off, murdering dozens and dozens of people, that she's allowing Key to believe that he has the upper hand for a short period of time, right? And so Key assaults her with sexual imagery, makes it, you know, makes her... Uh, uh, you know, give him a blowjob in one sequence, and then she, but then she quickly reasserts control. And but one of the things she lets him do in the dream sequence is use her gun to shoot him. And the first time I watched this, it didn't you know? I was just like, well, it's the gun, it's the gun that we've seen. It's the gun that he would be able to to grab. But on multiple rewatches, if you take the the opinion that Anderson is was in full control of this sequence the moment it began and that he really was never ever able to influence anything and you ask the question why is he using that gun it has a very important and relevant story beat later because later on he gets the opportunity to actually shoot Anderson and rather than using any of the myriad guns that are surrounding him he picks up her gun and attempts to shoot her. And one of the things established very quickly in the film is that there is an ID lock on judges' weapons. All right, presumably DNA, whatever. But if a non-judge grabs that weapon, it's going to do bad things to them. <laughs> and that, and it's, it's almost like she's setting him up for that, right? She lets him use that gun and then it establishes that later thing. Again, if that was intentional, it's awesome. It's brilliant. Like it's so good. It's like a nice, subtle, specific detail. I like to believe those things are intentional. <laughs> I've got to think they were, man. Cause you know, it's, it's a discussion. You've got to have it. You know, what, how do we establish that, that he would do this? Cause wouldn't this be common knowledge, right? Wouldn't this be something that everybody would know? You don't pick up a judge's weapon. Right, but this guy does it, and she sort of establishes that that's the case. Um, you know, in talking about the design and the, the the shots of this film, I will say that in terms of superhero movies, and Dread basically falls into that category, right? I mean, it's it's not really, but he's he's in that genre very loosely. This film does not have a ton of super iconic. We'll call them money shots. 
right? It's, it's shot in a very, very straightforward way, which I think works for the story. I, I don't think this is a movie where you want, you know, this isn't the Rocketeer, right? He's not going to be standing on top of the Griffith Observatory with the American flag waving in the background and spotlights on him, right? That's one of the most iconic superhero shots in all of superhero shots as far as I'm concerned. And Dredd is not that guy, and he's not supposed to be that guy. But there is the very sort of, uh, I don't want to call it pedestrian, but the very straightforward way that this movie is shot, it doesn't really afford any of those big, like iconic moments. Like, because the poster is a complete fabrication that honestly looks like it was prototyped on the Daredevil poster <laughs> from, from, I mean, because if you go back and look at the Daredevil poster for the Mark Steven Johnson Daredevil, like Ben Affleck film, right? Uh, it, it's basically the exact same poster. It's like Ju- Judge Dredd standing on the top of a building with one foot up and, and like the cityscape in the background and everything's like on fire and it looks cool. But this movie doesn't have any of those shots. Like it doesn't have any of those moments. It's, it's a very straightforward actioner in that way. Um, and, and I think maybe could have used a bit of that if we're being honest, uh, just to, to let us really sort of embrace dread. I think the closest we get is actually on the tag of that psychic scene when Anderson and, and dread reconnect. Uh, he's standing right in front of that, you know, six mega state flag. Like he's just standing there in front of it as this, this visual representation of that thing. Uh, and that's kind of one that gets a little bit close to it. So we're kind of moving into the final phase. This is a very short movie. It's 96 minutes. It is right? blessedly so this is, short. Yeah, like this is not beating around the bush. Again, I'm sure it's an art. I, I'm sure it's an element of the budget, like because every minute of screen time is money. Like that's just how it boils down. And there was a producer, probably Garland, sitting down and saying, "Okay, for every minute of screen time, it's costing us this much money. So where are we going to shut cut it, it right? down?" <laughs> um. Exactly, and. You know, and, and you can kind of feel that. So it's 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 a brisk ninety six minutes. It never really stops. And, and so as we enter into the final phase, they basically discover that not only is Mama in control of the slow mo distribution inside of Peach Trees, but that Peach Trees is actually the center of all slow mo production and distribution. Right. So the entire industry that is the slow mo drug trade is inside this building, and that's what she's trying to keep secret. Because if the judges know that it's here, they'll just storm the building and they'll take everything. So now armed with that um, from her psychic encounter with Key, they know that they have to take Mama out. They cannot leave the building until they have dismantled everything that she's built. And then we get the additional complication. The the backup arrives. That they promised just two judges, but they arrive, <laughs> um, and they're told that they can't get in. Right, that the the systems are in lockdown. They can't take them off. You know, it's a, plausible, but at this point, they should know that that's probably not the case. And then we we're, we're sort of moving into the final phase. Right, this is Act Three. Um, so we get a scene where a couple of kids who somehow believe that they're going to do something, uh, decide to go after the judge, right? And they're obviously teenagers. Uh, they are tatted up a bit, so maybe they're part of one of the internal gangs. Uh, we don't really know for sure, but they have a confrontation on this uh, sort of mezzanine area 
where they're one of the things that's not clearly established is exactly how you get to the top of one of these things. It's obviously not a central elevator. There's like a series of elevators and some of them are, are connected. Some of them aren't. So they're trying to figure out exactly how to get up to mom mom and they get confronted by these two kids and the kids are no threat. Judge Dredd knows this. And I guess this scene does, uh, my first time watching this was like, why does this scene need to be here? Right, like, what is the purpose of this scene? Because at this point, we know what the stakes are. We know who the villains are. Ultimately, what it does do for us is it gives Key a chance to escape, to have a distraction. Which okay, um, but it also I think is here mostly to show and and to reinforce that unbreakable moral code of Judge Dredd. While impenetrable, he does have limits onto what he's willing to do. Uh, so they distract the judge well enough, but rather than kill them, he stuns them. Uh, which, what is your take on that? Why is that an accurate portrayal of who Judge Dredd is? Or do you think it's the film rolling it back slightly so that we kind of see that he's a good person? What do you think? For me, it was not quite what I thought Judge Dredd would do. Um, yeah, I guess that's my issue with it, is that it feel, although I like the scene and I agree with the uh It contradicts the, the what he's been doing up until this point. Right, because these guys are, I mean, they're pointing guns at him. They have every intent to try and shoot him, and then they do, you know, fire at a judge, and he does not kill them. Um. So I, I thought it was an interesting one. And, and again, Dredd is a complex character. I don't want to make it seem like he's he's just one thing, right? He's a character that's existed for, you know, 40 years at this point. So, um, you know, obviously he has a lot of different interpretations of who he is. But I, I was always just intrigued by his reaction in this scene, that he doesn't, he doesn't execute judgment on these kids. Uh, you know, maybe he knows they're scared. He knows they're... They're, you know, making a bad choice, and so he doesn't want to see them, you know, in their lives. But it, it doesn't quite hang with some of the other things, because he has summarily murdered a whole bunch of people who shot at him in this movie yeah. so far. So it's it's just an interesting one, and, and it's a problematic scene in terms of, of how J Dredd has been presented. I like it. I think it does sort of put a chink in the armor a little bit, that he has some sense of mercy and, in there as well. And but. given that we see and get so little of him outside of just I am the law, it is nice to know that there's a bit more to him than that. So I don't know if I mind that the character is altered. No. But it is an alteration from what I expected. I just, I expected no mercy. Right, and it, it seemed justified because, you know, they they significantly impair their plan, right? Anderson is captured, he escapes with her, and he has whatever access code is necessary for him to just go straight to the top uh, top floor and uh, and deliver her to Mama. So now Dredd is, is truly alone. And really now we move into another very cool sequence of the film as we find out that Mama, one of the reasons why she's been able to grow this enterprise is that she has bought judges, right? There are judges who don't have the impenetrable morality of Dredd and who have instead taken the, the easier way of being paid off. 
So she calls them. They arrive. Uh, they dis- they get rid of the other two agents uh, or the other two judges and head inside. They end up killing uh, the medical officer that was kind of you know delivering exposition at the beginning. He sort of tells them what's going on, and then they go up to find Dread, basically expecting that it'll be easy because Dread won't see their betrayal coming. Uh, so they sort of find him, uh, find Dread. Dread's alone moving through uh, the facility is again trying to rescue Anderson and one of the guys slips up immediately and you know, doesn't note that there were two judges who put in the call he says there was only one and uh, so dread knows something's up murders him uh, crushes his neck um, <laughs> visibly with his gun and, uh, and kills him uh, yeah I mean it's, it's a little bit of a CG effect but there's some practical behind it too and and it looks pretty good. But so uh, he figures out pretty quickly that these judges are on the take and begins sort of summarily murdering them one by one as they approach. And they, they are capable. They do get the upper hand on him. Uh, we find out that he's running low on ammo, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing him deprived of his, his primary defensive weapon uh, and offensive weapon. But he... Uh, you know, has to be resourceful with his his weapon usage. He can't just keep flinging bullets around at people. And so he dispenses with those judges um, in some pretty cool ways, finds out that they're being paid off. And then at the same time, Anderson is is up sort of confronting Key and Mama. Uh, Key makes the mistake of trying to shoot her with her own gun, blows his arm off in another fantastic practical effect. Uh, looks really good. And uh, Anderson is able to uh, kind of escape and, and get out on her own. And then we sort of move into the end game. Uh, she is is left, or, or Mama, I guess, is left in her penthouse, uh, basically waiting for the judges to arrive. She still has one, the the female judge, uh, Lex, I can't remember. I think so. Uh, she's, I, I think so, but she's still left alive. And uh, she thinks she'll be able to take Anderson out very quickly because she won't expect the betrayal, but of course Anderson's psychic powers rescue her. Again, at this point, we now finally get to see Anderson using her psychic powers of her own volition to to survive, right? We do get a little glimpse of Mama's drug trade itself, uh, sort of the, again, this is a very kind of RoboCop scene, right? It's kind of like the the warehouse that RoboCop invades and blows up, and there's you know dust and everything in the air. Uh, another little RoboCop crossover there for me, but... Uh, he has a really good confrontation with two of the judges. He winds up getting shot, which I was surprised by. Even in the theater the first time, I was like, oh, crap, they shot Dredd. Uh, you know, again, you don't really, he's not going to die, but it's it was still just kind of shocking to see him even, you know, take a bullet. But so they shoot him, and uh, Dredd sort of convinces the guy to hold on, and the guy's like, oh, Dredd, I thought you were better than this. I mean, what do you expect to tell me to wait to kill you? And, and it, of course, it just gives Anderson enough time to shoot the guy in the back <laughs> and rescue Dredd. So, you know, at that point, I think that moment sort of solidifies Dredd and Anderson as partners, right? He he finally trusts her. Like, he knew that she was was going to come and, and help him, save him. And he was okay with allowing her to do that rather than trying to find a solution on his own, which I think is, is kind of, a again, an unexpected thing for Dredd. But... Um, a cool moment that allows them to to have a 
in a film that is not necessarily a hundred percent concerned about having you know character beats of, of any you know nothing super complicated. I think this is a really nice moment where the two of them are like, okay, we're we're a functioning team, right? You're just you're not just the rookie that's tagging along. And uh, I wanted to this time. I, I was going to count up the number of times that he calls her Anderson in the movie, as opposed to rookie. I want to say he only actually uses her name a, a couple of times. Uh, and I, I, I kind of think after he rescues her, he calls her Anderson. But I'd, I'd have to go back and, and watch it again uh, to see. But again, I, I think all of that stuff's very carefully controlled and, and sort of meant to evoke the, the change in their relationship as they they sort of uh, That's grow together. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool effect. Again, in a movie that's being extremely economical on, on pretty much every level, uh, I think this you know is pretty cool. Uh, I also do like the how Judge Dredd gets shot, right? Like he's standing behind a wall, he's in cover as he should be, and then the guy uses like a an armor piercing round to just shoot straight through the wall. And, and I love that he sees it happening, but he can't really get out of the way, so he just sort of takes it, which is it's kind of fascinating. To just watch me like sees it moving across and he's like, huh. And then, you know, it blows out, you know, a chunk of his stomach. <laughs> and and he's just kind of like, oh, and he kind of sinks down. It again, it's 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 part of what Urban is doing so well with this character, who could have been this very one-note, completely kind of boring character, and he turns him into something really, really cool. Um, there's just a lot of layers that he has to get through in order to make it a good that's worth watching and he does yeah. it <laughs> yeah a hundred percent like there's there's no question in my mind that this movie without what urban is doing to make this movie work it, this movie would fail i with without question in my mind and to the to the point that i i really cannot see anybody other than carl urban in this in this movie i i can't there's there's no one else that could do this in the same way. I mean, I'm sure there would be other actors who could, you know, play a stoic character, but the the entire package of what Urban is doing to create Judge Dredd here is what sells it as a film and as a project that's viable. Um, all right, so we're in the end game now. They've they've invaded Mama's inner sanctum, and Mama has basically one play left, and that is to she has rigged the entire building with detonators, uh, or at least the top of it, I guess. And uh, she is wearing a, a clip that is tied to her heartbeat. And if she if her heart stops beating, then the building will blow, and therefore Judge Dredd cannot kill her. Right? Um, brief moment to talk about like Mama's inner sanctum here. It's fairly typical in terms of like villain sanctums but she has a lot of trophies which i think are kind of interesting um we haven't been told a ton about her backstory but we do know that she dominated the other gangs of peach trees including uh some sort of a yakuza like stand i think called them the red dragons and her entire like room is just filled with all these trophies from all these these people that she's killed including like this red dragon jacket and all of this other stuff that we've kind of glimpsed in the past and I think, again, it speaks to really solid production design in the film. Like, they really were truly thinking about who this person would be, you know, what would these trophies mean to her, why would she have her, her, 
world, you know, sort of surrounded by them. But they're really the evidence of her accomplishments, right? Like she really has, in her mind, done some incredible things. And, and again, this is where we get into, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to perceive Mama here. I know I'm supposed to see her as powerful and dangerous. But to what end? And like, what, what is supposed to be my final take on her? And I'm really not sure that it's clear. And maybe it's not supposed to be. It doesn't have to be. But I don't know. And it's not that, like I want to pity her. I don't think she's a character that Garland wants us to necessarily feel sorry for. I probably misspoke saying that earlier. Oh, it's not necessarily I, that he wants us to feel sorry for her. But I think he wants us to have a kind of begrudging respect I can for see who that. she is and where she's come from. And maybe that's why her end rubs me the wrong way. Because she dies in the same way that that henchman died. Without any acknowledgement of accomplishment. And it's not that she deserves it. She's the villain of the piece. Um, also, her teeth. Whoa. <laughs> Surprise. A lot of actors won't let departments do that. I mean, like... That's a pretty method thing to let an art, let, you know, let your teeth get scummy and like, you know, look bad. But again, it, it speaks to Mama being a user of her own product. That she's not just the the person in charge; she is the person who actually, you know, takes it. Um, but at the same time, it's 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 something. You know, Lena Head is a very beautiful woman, right? She's incredibly yeah. attractive and 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 very stately, and and she really dispenses with all of that for this movie. Like she is all business. I love that in the same way I love Shirley's Theron doing that with Monster. I think it's sure. I think it's great when actresses just pick roles because they want to play this character, not because it's it's going to make them look good. You know? Yeah, um, it's not one of those glamour pieces. And speaking um, of that, I actually looked up what she had to say about her character, um, and I kind this might help. This kind of helps me a little bit. Uh, she says, I think of Mama like an old great white shark who is just waiting for someone bigger and stronger to show up and kill her. She's ready for it. In fact, she can't wait for it to happen. She's an addict, so she's dead in that way. But that last knock just hasn't come. Yeah, I could totally see that. And, and that does sort of, you know, link together some things about Hetty's performance. A kind of there is a kind of tone. Yeah, there's a fatalism to her approach here. Like, she wants to come out alive, but she's not desperate. You know, she's she's resigned to the reality of what's happening, even though she feels at the beginning that her power and status will protect her in some way. But so, I mean, the you know, this film ends. Uh, judge hits her up with one hit of slow-mo, issues his judgment, and then just hurls her out the window. Mm -hmm. And we know that Mama lives on the top floor of the building, right? She is... She's in the penthouse, baby. And... And he just tosses her. And out isn't the it and we get a, because he thinks the ex, the explosions, the detonators won't work at that level? Which if she yeah, hits that's, the ground, that's that's what he shoots her in the <laughs> stomach so she doesn't die instantly. And then he says, "Given how high up we are, do you really think that 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 transmitter is going to get through two hundred floors of of concrete?" And he's like. I don't think so. <laughs> so he, he throws her out uh, knowing that she's not going to die until she hits the very bottom, uh, which again is a slow-mo sequence. Um, it's shot in that same way. It's, it's beautiful. It's kind of haunting. 
you know, given how flight is often seen as, as a momentary freedom from pain in media, I, I think there may be an element of that here. I mean, some of these shots are, are truly beautiful. I mean, her arms are swept back. She's, she's collapsing. Her eyes are closed. It's a euphoric kind of thing. You know, she's not in fear as she falls, at least somewhat, I guess. But so we follow her all the way down, and then we get this final single shot as she slams into the ground, and then her It's a doozy. Her, her face just splits open. Oh, like yeah. we it's it's like a person hitting the ground face first. We're in complete slow motion as she is just angling down into the ground, and then her head just splits apart. Uh, again, not for the faint of heart, not for the squeamish. But uh, she just obliterates, and then we actually get a nice little visual. It's the X from from Dred's helmet is how the blood sort of splatters across the screen. Um, and that's pretty much it. Like, and there's no. Uh, we get a nice little shot just verifying that you know once her heartbeat goes red, nothing happens, and then Dred just kind of goes like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like he was, and and. There is a lot that could be said about the the parallel, the parallels between Mama and Dread, the fatalism, the nihilism, the open and willing acceptance of death, if that's what's coming. Like they are very much the same, and and at the end, again, Urban is doing so much with his physicality and his performance. It's almost like a begrudging respect, yeah. right? Like a, yeah, all right, that worked out, I guess. And he's just kind of okay with it. Um, so then he doctors up. Well, um, Anderson had taken a bullet during the, the final confrontation. And so he's kind of doctoring her up as uh, he had sort of, she had sort of observed him doctoring himself after taking his stomach wound. And then we get, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it, I, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty sure that this last sequence of shots is all Alex Garland because Alex Garland loves his establishing shots for the openings mm -hmm. and he loves his establishing shots for the endings, mm -hmm. right? Sunshine, perfect example of this, which again, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland, uh, 28 days later, beautiful establishing shots to open, beautiful establishing shots to close. Um, and, and we get them here. Peachtree opens back up. The entire film has taken place over the course of a single day, right? So one work day for a judge, if you want to call it that. And so the sun is rising, uh, the light is coming up, peach trees opens back up to the world again. We see these, these really great uh, visual, uh, special effects shots of the, the city sort of reopening to the world. All of these support staff are coming in to deal with the dead and to, to heal people up. The uh, head judge, I know it's, again, head judge has a name too, I can't remember what it is, um, shows up and says, well, how did Anderson do, right? And... You know, we're expecting him to say a fail. Anderson's expecting to be failed because she she broke a bunch of the rules that Dredd had expressly stated at the beginning of the process. And uh, he tells us that it's a pass, right? That she has proven herself uh, at this point many times over. And again, you know, within this wooden character, Urban is able to bring a lot of contemplation to it. Just really with like a, a head nod, a, a look down is enough to sort of know that this dude is experiencing a feeling yeah <laughs> which is great i mean it's such a cool thing and so rare uh, in in this type of movie making to have something like that 
Uh, so the film comes to a close. We get another little uh, voiceover from Dread, you know, reminding us of the mega city. We get an even wider shot now, and we see that there are hundreds of these mega cities. And then, of course, our, our last few shots of the film are Anderson with her helmet in tow heading out to grab her lawmaster to go on shift. And then a final shot of Dread you know, driving off into the brutalist wasteland of Mega City One, right? Um, and the titles in this. Uh, one thing I, I love, uh, the titles are very simple. It's just impact in bright red, massive off, across the screen. It's very impactful it and, broke, and interesting. It. <laughs> exactly. It's just simple, right? Uh, and a lot of the things, I guess we could really sum Dread up with simple, but fantastic in its simplicity, right? It doesn't overcomplicate it because it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. Dread is a straightforward character. The world that he lives in, while post-apocalyptic, and it does have its own sort of set of rules, also very straightforward. And, and I love that this film leans into that, that it doesn't necessarily feel like it has to complicate something that doesn't need to be complicated. And that is so rare, right? Because film and filmmakers are constantly trying to find that hook. They're trying to find the things that's going to grab the audience. And in doing so, they generally tend to make it way more difficult than it has to be to get through the story that they want to tell. And, and Dread is the exact opposite, right? It strips all that stuff out and tells a straightforward story in a really interesting way, anchored by really, really solid performances. And it's, it's great from start to finish. Um, so just to, to sort of bring these things together, I mean, we've really kind of hit most of the major things that I know I wanted to talk about, but, uh, one thing, the music is, is really solid in Dread. I'm not going to say it's excellent. This isn't the soundtrack I revisit. It fits you know, it frequently, but it's, it's very appropriate for the film. Uh, the guy who scored it, um, uh, Paul Leonard Morgan, you know, he's he's not really you know a member of band. Apparently, Portishead did some consulting with some of the pieces in the film, and there are a couple of you know written composed pieces you know outs that were brought in and used in the movie. But a lot of the score is is, is a little electronic. It's a little bit sparse, um, synthetic. Apparently, they started with a more traditional score and and sort of dispensed it very quickly uh, because it just didn't fit with the world, uh, which I think was a smart choice. Uh, but the soundtrack for this fits pretty well and there are a couple of nice little slow-mo shots with some cool like beats going on in the background that you can kind of grab onto and say ah that's pretty sweet but um you know it's definitely a little bit lower key than they could have done it could have been a little bit more pointed i mean i'm not saying like daft punk should have done the score for dread but i kind of wouldn't mind seeing what that would be like you know yeah um so one of the things that I will praise, you know, pretty much universally is the script. I think this is a really good script. I would actually love to read this shooting script. Uh, apparently Urban changed a lot. Like he, he did ad lib lines that they ended up keeping, which I think is a smart choice. I think he was so in Dredd's head that he probably was able to compose some pretty interesting responses and lines based gave on, it, on gave it character. a natural yeah oh absolutely dread like than just pretending to be dread <laughs> right i'm not just pretending this is who i am for this this film and, um but i would love to read this I, in general i like reading alex garland scripts they're very evocative but he does leave a lot to the imagination right he's not uh, you know you read some scripts and 
the screenwriters are, you can tell how hard they're working to make sure that their vision of the scene is on paper so that the director doesn't have much room to wiggle. Uh, it still happens, but you know, they're really working hard to be like, okay, the chair is in the left hand side of the room, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and this doesn't feel like that. It does feel like a script that's very airy, that's moving, and that is is a, a sort of, you know, dead sprint to get to the end. And and it, it just works, right? It, it's got all the pieces it needs. Um, nothing feels too out of place. Nothing feels too um, underbaked. But it's not reaching beyond its station, right? Like, it's it's very careful about that. Like there's, I feel like it would have been a mistake for this film, which is seriously just trying to set up the world of dread. Like it's just, it just wants you to understand what this stuff is and how it functions, you know, for these characters. I feel this movie, it would have been a mistake to end and have, you know, like dread leaving the hall of justice and then the camera pans and then there's, you know, judge death standing be like ah, dread you know like i this movie would have just fallen apart yeah. if they tried to do any stuff like that but i feel like any many other screenwriters given this material would have desperately tried to do that of course <laughs> and i think we've seen I that happen garland, many times oh, so many times and i think garland is really smart about keeping the focus of this one very contained um like you can feel that he wants this to hit Right. Like you can feel the filmmakers really thought that they had something going and they did like that's the shot. That's the sad thing is that they absolutely did have something going. This is a great movie. Um, and the fact that it's it's had to be discovered. Rather than embraced on its release is is really sad for me because uh, this is the kind of stuff that people now are saying, oh, man, I'd love to see something like that where it's just balls to the wall action violence you know cool scenes interesting characters just it, go 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 i go. guess i really i really have trouble with people not accepting this film but there's wholesale acceptance of mad max fury road and i'm right. like yes and these are very much in the same ballpark and, and i i don't think that dread is maybe as good as mad max fury road, no but. no but, but it also was made for a third. No, it was made for a quarter of its budget. And it's certainly <laughs> reaching for those same audiences. And it's trying to both recreate and recapture and elevate that 80s, 90s action movie experience. Whereas, you know, I feel like things like The Expendables are just rehashing <laughs> that territory. Oh, yeah. And I feel like yeah, they're Dread, treading on the, that Fury ground. Road... They're taking, you know, the nostalgia of the, the shoot 'em up, absolutely action-packed um, movies that people grew up on, but they're also trying to make them a little more contemporary. They're not just fueling it with nostalgia, although this really does feel like a doom noir come to life. Everything about <laughs> Dread, the way, just the way it's filmed, it's like being inside a doom level. <laughs> yeah the the stark hallways the the sort of um you know the the off lighting uh you know everything's kind of green and purple you know and you can tell a lot of it is them 
basically redressing the same hallway. Like very famously, one of one of my favorite shows is Stargate SG One. Right, I love Stargate SG One. It's it's cheesy as hell. It's but Richard Dean Anderson is He's wonderful. So, so good, but like very famously, they have like one ship hallway that they built, mm -hmm. and then they basically made it modular so that they could rip pieces off the wall, put other pieces on it, and make it look like a different ship. Right, but it's the same hallway, and they use it over and over and over and over again. And you can tell they did that here, where they had basically like two hallways, and they just would redress them with different colors, light them differently, and then show you something else. And again, it, you can feel that at times, but it still works super well. And it, it just it's it's evocative of a period and of a time. Kind of the way I've always thought of it is, you know, something like Mad Max Fury Road, like that's your Terminator too, yeah. right? That's this is that's your big swing, big budget, right? This is Commando. Yeah, that's what this. I is. knew you were gonna say Commando. Right? How did I know you? Were this is say that? this is Commando, right? This is small. We don't have a ton of money. We've got some bankable stars. We've got a pretty decent story. We've got a limited location budget. You may see your hero carrying the log at some point. Right. You know when we're gonna establish how strong Schwarzenegger is, we don't have the money. So put him in a gold's gym and have him push 500 pounds. We're just going to have him go cut down a tree and throw it on his shoulder. Yeah. Right. Like that's how we're going to show that this character is strong. But I'll be honest, like if, if I'm forced to, and this is going to be heresy to some people, but if I'm forced to watch predator, which I love mm -hmm. and commando, if I have to pick between the two, if somebody sits down and says, Hey, we can watch two movies right now, predator or commando. Like, I'm going to say 95% of the time I'm going to pick Commando. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, because, I mean, a lot of it, honestly, is that soundtrack with all those sweet steel drums. <laughs> That's so great. But also, I, I really like the purity of that film. It is super straightforward. Kidnap my daughter, murder 75 men until daughter is rescued. It's taken in the era before taken. Kill man in a crocheted shirt, right? Like, that's it. And, and I appreciate that. I like that simplicity. And Dread has that same simplicity. You know, it's not about awesome sci-fi concepts. I mean, it, it has those, but it's not about those. It's really just, here is this person with this unstoppable drive running up against this incredible force that wants to stop that drive. And then we're just going to slam those things together until we reach the conclusion. And Dread executes that as well as any great 80s action movie. And, and it's it's super effective. Um, and it looks good. Again, watching this movie, just you know, not knowing anything about film, this doesn't look like a movie that was made for $30 million. No. In not fact, I'm, I was surprised when I looked up the budget. Because I, I, I didn't know what it was until I was preparing for this. And I'm like, holy crap. They yeah, made the movie no, with mean, just it, that? It, it does not look like that budget. Um, they make a lot of good choices with practical sets and effects i mean that kind of stuff is always helpful but yeah it's 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 really really special like it is a great film and if it opens people up to the world of dread um which is a, a fantastic world to play in then all the better i mean like the dude who did the art for the killing joke his best art is in dread right brian Bolland's best mm -hmm. stuff is, is in his dread strips so I don't know. There's a, there's a lot here to love, but uh, so let's let's sort of move to the end here. So uh, one thing now with this one, this is a tough one thing for me because I don't know. Well, 
we'll get to it. But in any case, so what is what is one thing that you think could have pushed Dread to that wide mainstream acceptance? What's something that could have gotten people's attention in, in the way that it just apparently did? I... God. I've been thinking about this. Because I have a hard time thinking of things I don't like about this movie. So I think I have to come at it from the perspective of what if I didn't know who Judge Dredd was? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's an important thing because most people don't. And I wonder if a budget increase could have given a little bit more time. And while I appreciate that it's 95, 96 minutes, I also know what this is about. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. need as much prep for this universe as other people might feel that they need. Um, so I wonder if maybe an extra 20 minutes of expository setup, or maybe not even front-loaded, but kind of woven throughout the film, where we get just a little bit better understanding of what kind of world this is. Because um, we don't get a lot of the judges. And we no, don't get a no. ton of the system, the justice system that exists in the megacity. Um, I wonder if people would have been able to latch on to the concept if they just understood it a little better. So I guess that yeah, would be my um, No, I, I agree. And some of that may have been the production troubles. I mean, again, at this point, we don't know how much of this movie is Alex Garland's and how much of it is Pete Travis. Um, we, you know, Pete Travis is given the director's credit, but oftentimes, especially for the way that the, the British Directors Guild handles crediting, there was a period where Alex Garland was seeking a co-director credit for this. And and then that was very quickly swept under the rug. And he just accepted a, a story writing and producing credit. But apparently at some point in this process, Alex Garland felt like he had done enough work on this movie to deserve a co-director credit, which is saying a lot. As did um, stars in the film, if I recall. Yeah, Ur- Urban complicated this a few years ago by saying that basically this should be considered Alex Garland's first film. So a lot of stuff happened on the back end. And most films are built in the editing room, right? They're, that's where they come together. You, you collect all of your footage, all of your tiny pieces of this much, much larger thing, and then collect them together in the editing room and, and complete the film. And supposedly Pete Travis was sort of locked out of that process. Garland was pretty expressly in control of everything that took place in post-production. So uh, I wonder if maybe there were moments where they said, oh, we'd love to have this, but we don't have it. And there's no way for us to get it because we can't go back to South Africa. We can't rebuild those sets. We can't do those things again. But I, I agree. I think this film needs a little bit more world building than we get. I think... Garland was very careful to pick slices and pieces of the world that would be the most palatable to someone unfamiliar with dread, right? So that we wouldn't necessarily get inundated and overwhelmed with all of the strangeness. But at the same time, stripping all that away, maybe that hurts the film more than it helps it in terms of grabbing onto this world and becoming fascinated by it and wanting to be a part of it. And so I'm definitely with you there. For me, I think my one thing, it still comes it comes down to Mama as a villain. Um, she's a good villain. She's great bait for Dredd to just stalk after. But I, I really feel like 
and, and again, this probably sounds bad, but you want to feel satisfied when the main villain of the film is dispensed, right? And, and I use dispense very, because that's what Judge Dredd does to people. He dispenses them, dispenses justice. But Mama's death is, is sort of beautiful as it was. I, I'm still conflicted by it. I don't know if I should feel good about it or not. And I don't necessarily have to feel good. Maybe I'm supposed to feel conflicted. But I think it kind of sours the end of the movie for me because I, I want more of her or what I'm supposed to think about her. And, and I just don't feel like the movie gives me all those pieces that I want. And maybe that's part of that exp exposition, right? We need more time with Mama. We need to understand her better. I don't, again, I don't know if I really want that. I don't know if I had more of that, if I would really say, oh, this is good or this is bad. I feel like the film as it stands is currently balanced, but I feel like there are elements of it that are unsatisfying. I love Dredd as a character. I want to be with him and on his side. And maybe that's Garland saying you really shouldn't be, right? Because there are later arcs in Judge Dredd that address specifically the fact that maybe we really shouldn't be rooting for this guy. Yeah. Maybe this is not the guy that we would be rooting for in, in the world that we know today. And we shouldn't necessarily go like, yeah. And maybe that's why I feel conflicted about Mama. Is I want to side with Dredd, but at the same time, he and Mama are so similar in yeah. their drives and motivations. And it's really just Dredd gets the upper hand, right? But at any point, it could have gone the other direction. Maybe it's that. So maybe a little bit of clarification of her would have been good. I think know, if we had, like, kind of riffing off of how that that could be changed by world building, is if we understood more gangs and more, you know, blocks outside of peach trees and how sure. crime is dealt with there, that maybe we could see why Mama is different. Um, yeah, some someone to compare her to, to yeah. bounce her off of. Yeah. But we don't really get that, so we're not sure if Mama is an exceptional villain or if she is a product of the world that she lives in. Sure. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's good. Um, so maybe, you know, structuring that villain maybe would be my one thing. Um, but really the one thing that this movie needed was budget. Yeah. I just needed money. Like the fact that they made the movie that they did for the money that they had is a remarkable achievement and a, and a test, uh, and a, a testament to just how passionate most of these people were about making this movie. Cause you don't get this kind of movie without people who are a hundred percent committed to making it happen. And, uh, you know, I, I hope Garland gets to come back and play in this world again. He has expressed interest. Urban has expressed interest over and over again to come back and revisit this world and, and take these characters somewhere else. There's been talk of a TV series recently, um, which I think would be a good choice for Dread. Dread, I think, would benefit from longer form storytelling, uh, as complicated as that could potentially be. And with streaming services, you could do hyperviolence and get away with oh, it. Oh, for sure. Like, Garland has developed a relationship with Hulu. Apparently that show did pretty well. Um, so maybe. I don't know. But um, I think what we got out of it, regardless, is, is still pretty special. So what would be your failure piece score? Where does this fail? Or what level does this fail to for you? Um, for me, it's it. this is not a failure. Like I, I said, I think it could be improved by some extra time dedicated to the world itself. Um, 
but I would give this like a solid 93. Mm. Because even without it, I enjoy the film and it's one that I continue to watch. And I know that a film's got something going for it if I pick it off of the shelf. Um, I'm really picky about the films that I rewatch. I will rewatch them absolutely until the disc burns and, and disintegrates. But I'm always amazed at what films have that sticking power. And this has a lot of sticking power. Oh, for sure. It's a very rewatchable film. Uh, I'm definitely in the same ballpark. Uh, this is about an 86 for me. Like, I think it's it's exceptional. I think in some ways it's a missed opportunity just because of circumstance. The, the long gestating nature of the project and, and, you know, getting off the ground in the way they did, the potential, you know, director-producer conflicts that, you know, kept the film from maybe having a, a real strong unified vision, uh, even though I think it gets very close to that on its own. This is, this is a good movie, right? It's, it's pretty undeniable, especially if you are just into solid, fast-moving action films, right? Just something that's going to be you know, sort of quickly and expressly take you through this world, through this story, and, and give you a sort of satisfying conclusion to it. Um, it's it's not going to, it's not epic, right? Like there's, you know, there's no shots of a character learning something on top of a mountain or something like that. But, <laughs> um, you know, like there's none of that. I'm trying to imagine where that would fit in. <laughs> it's, you know, but it's, it's really satisfying, right? It, it it kind of feels, I mean, a couple years after this, we get the first John Wick movie and, and it kind of feels on that level. Um, it's not executed to that degree. It's not as slick as that movie by any stretch, but it, it feels like that same kind of, you know, John Wick is often called like a breath of fresh air to the action genre. And, and, and I agree, but I think dread does much of the same stuff, but in a, in a also- kind of cool <laughs> But it's a, a different world, and a world that doesn't necessarily feel as, as right now as the, the, the world of John Wick does. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is obviously a pretty hard recommend from both of us. If you've never seen Dread, find it. Um, I believe, uh, I could be wrong about this, uh, the free television streaming service Pluto, Pluto TV, uh, we're not plugging them. We're obviously not sponsored by them. Uh, but I am relatively certain that it is streaming Dread for free right now. Um, so if you've never seen it, uh, you can literally just download the Pluto TV app and watch it. So that is pretty sweet. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's kind of wrap things up. Uh, so where can we find you on social media? I am at Baskinator on Twitter and the Baskinator on Instagram. Very nice. And, uh, of course, you can get a hold of me at T Baskin on Twitter. And if you want to get a hold of us as a unit, you can get a hold of us at at FPS Theater on Twitter and FailurePiece at gmail.com. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, we had a great time talking about Dread. We're going to talk about another cool film next week. Hope you come back for that, too. Um, and this week, we just want you to remember, you're never really a failure if somebody loves you. And so we love dread. Mm-hmm. We love you. <laughs> so nobody's a failure here. <laughs> All right. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. <laughs>